Nothing's more powerful than an idea whose time has come. The show is about those ideas. everybody before you do anything i have to warn you about this episode if you have children in the car may not be the good time to listen to this episode if you have really sensitive in-laws maybe not be well may it actually may be a good time to listen to this episode because you know maybe you'll offend them enough they they don't come over as often but there will be some explicit language used in this episode why well sometimes i use explicit language and so does my guests right Sometimes when you're talking about something with a lot of passion and vigor, sometimes explicit language is the best sentence enhancer when you're trying to emphasize something. So I just wanted to give you that fair warning. Now, for those of you who are listening to this on the state of MedTech, uh, this is a MindLoom episode. You will learn very quickly what a MindLoom episode is. And for all of the MindLoomers out there, the people who had followed me for many years, this is the first project I really started when it comes to writing, to podcasting. Um, thank you for your patience. I really appreciate um, the support and me taking some time off. Had a baby this year, um, started a business, went from entrepreneur, entrepreneur, all these great updates. Um, and I need to give a, uh, I need to issue a slight apology to my guest here who uh, told me I don't need to apologize for this, but I want to because we recorded this episode over nine months ago. I didn't publish it because I was waiting for the right time, um, had the baby, you know, there's just plenty of excuses. But the best part is the delay gave us some things, which is I have some fantastic resources for you that would not have been available had we published a few months ago. And this is thanks to our guest. So let me tell you about our guest. Our guest is the legendary Christopher Lockhead. Now, Christopher Lockhead was uh, is a marketer and entrepreneur. I want to give you a little bit of background on him. He was born in Montreal, Canada. And by the way, don't skip through this part because we're going to get to the resources in a second. Okay, so born in Montreal, Canada, he was a dyslexic paperboy who was kicked out of school at age 18 with very few options. He became an entrepreneur. He became a marketer in Silicon Valley, worked at a lot of fantastic companies, rising up to the level of chief marketing officer. And one of the uh, bigger uh, uh, plays that he had uh, was being part of the great team over at Mercury, which HP acquired for $5 billion in November 2006 after Mercury had grown to over $1 billion in sales. Since then, he has served as a, as a board director, advisor at a variety of different companies, but more importantly, he's a creator, he's an author, he is a true influencer, not in the sense of posting BS online about how great his life is, but influencing thought, influencing our actions. For me, Christopher is what uh, would I would call a modern-day philosopher in the sense that he doesn't teach you not only how to think, he teaches you how to how to act, right? And so since uh, uh, since then, in the last 10 years, what has he been doing? Well, he is a 13-time number one best-selling co-author, number one on uh, the podcast charts in, in different business categories such as marketing, right? And an advisor to over 50 venture-backed startups uh, and is also a uh, venture capital limited partner. Um, now, some of the books he's authored, Play bigger. When I was a young marketer in 2015, I was, uh, you know, really into market engineering and, and category design. But it wasn't called category design. There wasn't a name for it. I read Play Bigger, taught me about category design. I read his other book called Niche Down, another fantastic book about really focusing your efforts in marketing and how you design a category. And then most recently, him and some fellow co-authors, Nicole and Eddie Yoon, published this fantastic book 
which I will leave in the show notes called Snow Leopard, How Legendary Writers Create a Category of One. This is a fantastic book if you're a solopreneur, great book if you're an entrepreneur. Hey, even if you're a wantrepreneur, right? You're working a job, but you're, you know, got a side hustle. You want to, you know, one day break free, which is, that was me. I, I was a entrepreneur for 10 years. I became an entrepreneur this year, right? Get Snow Leopard. It'll teach you how to think. It'll teach you how to write. And more importantly, it's written by three guys who are damn good at writing. They're really good at it. Okay. That's the first resource. Second resource is just going to get better and better. My friends, second resource is that for those of you who want to understand what does it mean to design a category? If you, let's say you're running a company or or you're about to start one, how do you design a category to dominate the market, right? Like these billion dollar unicorns. You can become a category designer through this free accelerator. It's free. I'm gonna leave a link. It's You can just go to categorypirates.com or just check the show notes below. Type in your email, and then for the next week, you're gonna get some specific emails and exercises that'll teach you how to think and execute like a category designer. I went through it myself, and again, after doing, you know, uh, this for many years, studying category design, implementing it in companies. This accelerator is fantastic, and and it's free. And the last resource, big shout out to my to to, to Christopher for sharing this, is that there's a lot of like newsletters out there, right? I'm sure many of you have signed up for them, unsubscribed. Same with me. There's only two newsletters that I've signed up for that I pay for today. One of them is the Category Pirates newsletter, which teaches you a lot about category design. Every Wednesday, they come out with amazing content. A new, it's one long article about a perspective on marketing, on category design, you know, high, heavily researched, extremely well-written. I can't think, there hasn't, and I, I'm not exaggerating here, there hasn't been a single category design newsletter I opened, and when I read it, I was like, eh, could have done with that, that. It's a great, great newsletter. And guess what? Uh, the Category Pirates have given me a link and you can uh, get a free week of their newsletter. And look, you be the judge yourself. So you can go to categorypirates.substack.com or just check the show notes below. And lastly, before we launch into this episode, if you're a clinician, because this episode is so valuable, I wanted to make sure that clinicians also get the benefit of this. If you're a clinician with your own private practice, or let's say you're, you're a surgeon looking to start a company, whatever it is, I'm going to give you a CME credit for this. So you can unlock an AMA PRA category one credit, thanks to our partners over at CMFI, by listening to this episode. All you got to do is listen to the episode, check the show notes below, click the link, and just write a few sentences of what you learned. Amazing, right? So go ahead and do that. So without further ado, here is my inaugural, or I guess, uh, return episode, return to launch the Mind Loom podcast once again uh, with Christopher Lockhead. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. And this is a unique show. This is a this is a matrimony, a marriage between two of the great podcasts that we have here, the State of MedTech, which many of you know, and Mindloom, which focuses on dangerous ideas from fantastic authors and books. And our guest today is so legendary, so infamous, so well known that I said, whatever, we gotta combine the two. Now, a couple of housekeeping items. Number one. If you're a physician listening to this, you will get a continuing medical education credit for your reflection on this. Just check the show notes. Thank you to CMFI. All you do is click that link, head over to CMFI, take 30 seconds, type in your reflection as to what you learned from the show today, and you claim one CME credit. How great is that? That's fantastic. And number two, do not fast forward past this part. Um, 
Christopher and I, we share a common bond here, which is we like to use colorful language uh, sentence enhancers when we're trying to make a point. For the most part, none of you have heard me do this because I try and, you know, I try and keep it a little PC because, you know, in the med tech industry, we're rather conservative. This show, though, um, I would like for us both to be comfortable uh, speaking however we'd like to speak. So for whatever reason, if you're driving your kids to school today or maybe your parents are over, this is not the episode you're going to want to have on Full Blast. So be warned. Um, you might hear a few things slip here and there, but whatever, you know, as, 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 as they say in the streets, fuck it. We'll just do it live. So with that being said, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. And I appreciate taking time out of your busy schedule. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Omar. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, I must tell you though, I'm a little tired and I'm sweaty and a little stinky. I mean, you, you look like a million bucks on, you know, from my, from where I'm sitting. So you're, you're doing good, man. So, well, my, my, um, fought my 91 year old father-in-law runs the last working orchard in San Jose, California. And, um, wow. when the family, when the family owns a small a farm, everybody works. So I did about four hours of, uh, uh, hard yards on the farm this morning, but it's, it, you know, it's the great kind of sore, like uh, working on a farm is, is it's a very satisfying thing, but uh, yeah, I'm a little stinky and a little sore. Well, you know, that's uh, something that we can definitely share, share a bond on. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a guy that grew up in Texas uh, and, you know, my mom's side, there are a few farmers. My uh, wife's side uh, comes from a small village in Turkey. Actually, I shouldn't say that they're going to get pissed. It's not that small of a village, but we you know they have a farm back there and everything. So there's something to be said when you work with your hands, you know, and, and work, work in the outdoors, right? There's something to be said about it. Now, before I, I we, we kind of get into it, I, I want to provide like a little context and something I've been wanting to share with you. So I would say about seven, maybe, maybe eight years ago to date, um, uh, when I, when I, you know, a few years after I dropped out of medical school, I got into marketing and like any medical student, the only thing, the one thing we're really good at is we're like machines when it comes to learning. So I was like, what do I got to read? So I know what the hell I'm doing. And so I got recommended all these great books and we're talking, I think 2013. So I'm looking at them right now. Like, you know, like the 22 immutable laws of marketing, for example, that's a classic. And from that book, I, you know, looked at the law of leadership and the law of category and, and, and those kind of things. And it really had an impact to me. And right around 2015, I wrote this article about surgical robotics and the idea of what it means to engineer a market, right? To own something that the dumb thing you should, that you would do is to say, hey, I'm going to go into an existing market to play by somebody else's rules and get compared. And I didn't know what that was called back then. Then... And I have them here. The first thing was uh, late, a few years later, I came across uh, Play Bigger, which was a, a fantastic book about this concept of category design. That's when I was first introduced to your work. And then um, most recently, I, I mean, I read this a, a few years back when it was published, is that your book uh, with Heather Clancy called Niche Down, which dives even deeper into this concept of category uh, creation and design. There are a few people who know what the hell they're talking about when it comes to this. Um, you're somebody that not only brings, you know, you can call it, let's say, the subject of artistic side of marketing, but more importantly, the data-driven side of marketing of why you should do it this way. And I've just been a huge fan of your work. Uh, your podcast, uh, Lockout of Marketing, is absolutely fantastic. They're just great episodes I recommend to every marketer to listen. I actually have my own playlist that I give to young marketers. They say, listen, 
go through these 10 or 15 episodes. And when you're done, let me know. And then of course, uh, the most recent thing that you've launched, which is Category Pirates, which is to date, and I'm, I'm a marketer. And as you can see, I'm in my library. I buy a lot of uh, books and, and courses. It's the only paid newsletter that I've continued to subscribe to because it's that damn good. So that being said, uh, thank you for, for coming on the show. And I just kind of, you know, a little bit of uh, background, like, tell us about your story before Christopher Lockett was Christopher Lockett. Who were you like 10, 20 years ago in your career? And how did you end up here? Well, first of all, thank you for all of that. It's very, very kind of you to say. And I'm stoked to hear that um, our work and everything you just mentioned, every book you just mentioned is a collaboration. And everything I do is a collaboration, including my podcast, everything with uh, legendary friends and, and, and brothers and sisters. So um, I'm glad to hear our work and particularly category design is making a difference for you, Omar. So thank you. Um, I think my story is not that different than... Um, a lot of entrepreneurs, for many entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship is a way up in the world, and that's great. And I've spent a lot of time in my career um, in Silicon Valley. It's been where I've spent the bulk of my career working with uh, what you might call big E entrepreneurs who go out and raise uh, several hundred million dollars from top-tier venture capital firms and uh, try to build giant categories and companies and so forth. So that's been the bulk of my career. However, that's not how I started. Um, so I got thrown out of school at 18, um, for being stupid. I found out at 21 that I'm dyslexic and I have dyscalculia and now a, a number of, uh, what today we lovingly refer to as learning differences. I kind of put them all together and call it dysfuclea. I think I read that in Harrison's um, actually. I think, yeah, yeah. dyslexia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hopkins is doing great work in it too. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I've been told too. Um, and I think like a lot of young people, you know, got thrown out of school and my options really were, um, my mother actually worked in a hospital and she was what was called a unit coordinator, which is essentially kind of the nurses, head nurses, right arm kind of thing. And so she got me a job actually as an orderly in a hospital when I was a teenager and uh, it was a great job. Um, and after I got thrown out of school, um, my choice was really, well, do I uh, be an orderly for the rest of my life um, or do I start a company? And uh, I decided to start a company. And so at 18, that's what I did. And um, through a bunch of, you know, uh, roundabouts and swizzles and, and failures and successes along the way, my first business failed terribly. Um, but over time, I ended up starting a boutique consultancy. I'm originally from Canada. I live in Santa Cruz, California today. Uh, I've been in Silicon Valley for over 25 years now, but uh, I started a, a boutique um, uh, consultancy, um, and I ultimately sold that to a U.S.-based uh, Silicon Valley-based software company. And so at 27, 28 years old, I was the head of marketing for a publicly traded software company. But, and, but Chris, um, isn't that, isn't that too doing... young? Isn't that too young to be a CMO? <laughs> um well, it depends on um, it depends on your context. I sure didn't think so, and neither did the CEO that hired me. I agree. Um, and actually, we can talk about that if you like. Uh, absolutely, that there I wanted to many... prompt you on that because you've you've posted about this, and I and every time you know, I think you do a good job as a thought leader and someone at least who's who's mentoring at scale when you post something and at least a few people read and say, 
fuck yeah, I completely agree with that. And and when I when I saw mm -hmm. you post about this, this concept of you're not too young to be a CMO, I completely agree. Can you can you riff on that a little bit? So I don't mean to divert you, but I know if I don't ask about it now, we're gonna I'm gonna we're gonna get off on something else later. So. Well, and listen, I'll chase you down any zebra hole you want to go down. Uh, and actually, in Category Pirates, we just published a book called um, How to Build uh, Your First Profitable Business, 18 Ideas for 18-Year-Old and Younger Entrepreneurs. And we really believe that uh, one of the biggest failures in our education system is not teaching young people to be entrepreneurial, even if they don't end up being entrepreneurs. And... Um, and uh, and so we think that that teaching young people, very young people to be entrepreneurial, to make a difference in the world, to contribute and to make money. Now, here's the aha. If you in, if you have thirty thousand dollars invested by your 18th birthday, uh, you're financially free. That is to say, you don't have to worry about your retirement. And if, if, if a younger person exits high school with marketable skills and an entrepreneurial spirit, regardless of whether they actually become an entrepreneur or not, they're set up to succeed in a way that is uh, very, very powerful. So, um, so yes, I, I, I think I'm not somebody who believes in um, pigeoning whole people. I don't fit in a box. I'm different. Everything about me is different. And so I think that you can be a legendary 17-year-old uh, entrepreneur. I know them. Uh, I know I know 17 year old entrepreneurs who are making over a million dollars a year with digital businesses that they that they run part time from school. Um, I also know uh, 70 year old uh, business leaders and executives who do legendary legendary entrepreneurial things. Um, I uh, a buddy of mine right now is um, is a co founder of a company with an 85 year old uh, multi billionaire who I've gotten to know. And they're doing incredible things on the forefront of technology. And so, um, and we had Marty Cooper on my podcast. Uh, Marty Cooper is the inventor of the cell phone. He's, he's in his early 90s. And Marty is unbelievable. And I had actually met Marty years ago at a conference. And I was lucky enough to have dinner with him and his wife. Incredible. And Marty is as vital today as he ever has been. He's trying to fix the digital divide. And so all that is to say, Omar, uh, I think any notion about age limiting you on either end of the spectrum. I think all that's bullshit. I think if you want to do, if you want to do something legendary, you should go do that. I no, I completely agree. And I think, you know, uh, from all the things that I've read over the years and I've, I've just been, a, I, I, I have been, and still have, still am a machine when it comes to learning. And by the way, um, we, we have that common bond. So I was diagnosed, uh, with dyslexia when I was a kid as well. And it affected me all my life until the day I woke up and I said, no, this is not going to be a, a, a hindrance. I'm going to look at this like a superpower. And that's when my life changed. Um, but no, I, I, I completely agree. And I think age is, it really, as cliche as it is, it really is a number. There, there are young men and women who I've met who are barely a few years into their career and they're in their 20s. And I, I, put the, I would put them against any entrepreneur. Like a couple that I want to shout out, one is Henry Peck who's I think 25 or 26 years old, he's been in the med tech industry for barely a couple of years. His understanding of product, uh, uh, how to take things to market, uh, innovation 
is just unmatched. I, every time I talk to him, I feel like I'm talking to somebody who's been in the industry for 20, 30 years. Another guy who I, I, I'm going to clip this to show how right I am about this. Uh, Graham Taylor, um, who's 25. Uh, this guy is a savant. I don't know how else to say it. And um, even um, Bruce Cleveland, uh, you, might, you might recognize the name, out of, out of C3AI. Bruce and I were talking, and Bruce... Bruce is is, a, is an old guard, like, seasoned guy from the Valley. He's not, like, a happy-go-lucky dude, so he doesn't just say these for fun. He just he just says, yeah, Graham, that kid's a savant. He's going places. So, Graham, if you're listening, uh, I'm going to be enjoying uh, watching the ride in terms of what you do as a young uh, uh, a VC. But, yeah, I completely agree with that. I'm, I'm glad you went, you went down that real quick. So, please, con continue on with your story. I just had to sort of touch on that for a little bit. Yeah, no, of course. And uh, I, look, I think all of those isms are stupid. I think we're all striving for a true meritocracy. And I'll give you another one. We haven't written this yet, but we're going to a category pirates. So category pirates, there's three of us uh, working on this together. And I'm 53. Eddie Yoon is, I don't know exactly how old, but he's in his uh, mid to later 40s. And Nicholas Cole, who goes by Cole, uh, is 31. We are equal partners. And one of the things we're going to write about is um, there's a lot of um, um, what I what you might think of as uh, self-limiting uh, frameworks. Mm -hmm. And one of them is this mentor-mentee bullshit. And amongst the three of us, sure, Eddie and I are the old senseis. We were the guys with the scars and who, you know, have written what we've written and done what we did. And da, 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 da. sure. All due respect to us, by the way, uh, you know, both Eddie and I are over ourselves. I, uh, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not impressed with people who are still impressed with themselves, but I, I digress. So it'd be very simple to say, Oh yes, you know, we're the old um, Obi-Wan Kenobi's. And I actually, my nickname for Cole is I like to call him the young Jedi. Um, and, we're equal partners. Cole's contribution to what we do is extraordinary. Category Pirates would never be what it is without Nicholas Cole. And I would assert, and I think Eddie would stand with me on this, that we learn at least as much, if not more, from Cole. Mm -hmm. And so, Great writer, so by the way. I think this... Oh, unbelievable. We get into that if you like. <laughs> but I think this whole thing about mentor, mentee, teacher, student... I, you know, look... I think there's a lot of that 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 um, we can get hung, uh, hung up on when in reality, um, my friends in the military say to me, look, in combat, that's not how it works at all. Yes, there's a commanding officer. You know, one of my closest friends is Iron Mike Stedman, uh, Captain Iron Mike Stedman from the Marines, now retired um, and a legendary entrepreneur, one of the most legendary entrepreneurs I know, Ironbound Media, Ironbound Boxing. But he says in combat. People are equals. Yes, there's a senior leader, a commanding officer, but when the ball needs to get called, the person in the right position to call the ball calls the ball. And one of the things that makes our partnership at Category Pirates work is um, uh, simplicity equals velocity. And so any one of us can make any decision about anything without consulting the other two if he wants to. And the, our, uh, the arbiter for whether or not he should talk to the other two before making the decision is, does he think he should? 
And if he doesn't, he does it. And so there's a lot of things that Cole does that he doesn't talk to Eddie and I about. He just does. And because he's the writer, although Eddie and I, you know, we have some chops, but Cole stands alone. It's not, <laughs> there's no confusion about that. One of the things, for example, is um, somebody has to decide when we're done. Because as you know, when writing, you could never be done. Mm-hmm. And so there's one person in category uh, pirates who decides when we're going to hit publish. And that's Nicholas Cole. And so, you know, and there are not very many situations where the two old guys would let the young guy call that kind of an important ball every week. So anyway, my point is, yes, mentor, mentee, there's some value to that. However, don't be confused. The, 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 the diversity that a lot of people don't talk about is background diversity, is age diversity, uh, is skill set diversity. And all of us bring equally important things to the table. And um, we all mentor each other and we all love and support each other and we all make each other uh, radically different and radically exponentially different than we would otherwise. Um, So anyway, but there there you have it. There's my diatribe (laughs) on uh, blasting the the legacy thinking about mentor mentee. No, I absolutely love it. And, you know, just to kind of, you know, you know, to add to that, um, you know, I think. I think, and we see this very much in medicine. The the physicians who are listening, medicine. There's this there's this um, culture on the positive side of mentorship, right, and apprenticeship. The problem with that is that it's extremely hierarchical, and so people who think that are either more experienced or older, etc., they think they are all knowing, and that's a huge, massive blind spot. And at least the way I see it, a lot of young college students come to me because they want like help and mentoring, and I tell them like aside from if you're gonna, if I'm gonna mentor you, gotta take action on my advice. The other thing I tell them is that I want to learn from you. So like, here's what I'm interested in. And a lot of them are shocked and they're like, "But I'm just like, I'm still a student, or I'm only a year into my career." I'm like, "Yeah, but that's the point. Is that right now you're spending so much time learning, trying things, etc., just to kind of level up. You're going to figure out a bunch of things just in this coming month that I'm not." I think that's a lot of things that students don't realize. This is why I've I've kind of taken on this idea of lifelong being a lifelong student and being a lifelong mentee, whether it's books or, you know, people I'm mentoring or people who are mentoring me is that there's always this opportunity to, you have a, a mental framework of something. It just takes one day that that mental framework is wrong. And if you're not curious enough to listen to it, then you're going to make huge mistakes in your, in your life. I mean, one of the best pieces of advice that I got from marriage and I'm, very, very proud of the woman that I've married and the marriage that we have is that even if you're right, if you're having an argument with your wife, even if you are correct, it's like 99% that you are correct, you still need to learn to shut up and not think ahead and just listen because there's this 1% chance that your partner knows something about something else that's a little bit different than the mental model you have in your head. And I think that there's this ego that people have that I've seen it all, I've done it all, et cetera. And they discount the value of somebody who's a new beginner and how hyper aware they are about the thing that they're trying to learn and that they're going to see things in a different way, you know? Yes. And most people would rather be right than successful. That's, that's a, that's a, and by the way, for uh, uh, Chris, just for, just for, you know, but also for the listeners, cause I know a lot of them watch on YouTube. Um, I'm not looking down on my phone. I knew I was going to enjoy this uh, so much. 
that I, I have my journal for me. So I'm kind of like writing down things that I'm, you know, that, that I'm doing <laughs> these journals. So I'm having my uh, first, first kid in May. It's, it's going to be a, 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 a son. So he, he's got a, a bunch of great journals full of fantastic knowledge from fantastic people like you that he'll have to go through. But yeah, I, I, congratulations. I completely Omar. Agree. Stoke, stoked. I'm, I'm stoked for and your gal. Thank you so much. Can you repeat that one more time? Cause I w I really want to just clip that. Yeah, congratulations on your upcoming baby. That, I, I'm super stoked for you and your gal. <laughs> that I appreciate. No, it was it was it was the other uh, the other other thing you had said. Uh, oh, <laughs> most people would rather. <laughs> <laughs> I'll clip that too. I'll clip that too. <laughs> most people would rather be right than successful. Yeah. See, I told you it wasn't possible. <laughs> yeah, and those are the worst people to be around. There are people that I know that I've worked with that would rather something fail than be wrong no yes and for most of us to be right if you think about it if you want to click double click on this one a little bit for most of us to be successful it means being wrong about something it, or at least if wrong's too hard of a word it it, it means that we have surrendered something hmm. why why do you feel that's a, that's very deeply uh I, want, I don't want to say biblical, but there's something spiritual about that. Then in order to be successful, you have to be wrong. And there's something about surrendering or letting something go. Can you cue deeper into that? Sure. Um, one of my favorite expressions, Omar, is um, if you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know mm -hmm. you have one? And so that's called learning. And there are opinions that we can hold. You think about yourself, uh, opinions that you have today that maybe 10 years ago you had a different opinion about. You've evolved. You've learned. Um, if you look at what's happened in our society of late, uh, I'll give you a simple example. I've had black and brown friends my whole life. I went to a very uh, culturally diverse um, school in a um, uh, a city, Montreal, Canada, with you know, a reasonable amount of diversity. Um, and I went to a school that was the Island of Misfit <laughs> Toys. So it was the school that you went to if all the other schools didn't work for you. And so as a result, you know, we had uh, openly gay folks and we had you name a culture, we had them, or you name a shade of something and, and we had them. And, uh, and so that was just the world that I grew up in. And that's been the case my entire life. Um, and since the murder of George Floyd, uh, I would say my level of understanding and the, the deep quality of conversation that I've had with black and brown people in my life who I love um, is different in a very powerful way. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm glad about that. And so, you know, I didn't understand uh, simple things like if you're if you're a black guy who looks like me uh, and you get pulled over by the cops for speeding, um, that can be a very scary situation. I've never been afraid of a cop in my life. Uh, those things were not front of mind for me. I mean, I was not ignorant to racism. Far from it. But my point is um, the conversation, the openness, the dare I even say sensitivity uh, towards some of these topics uh, for me personally since that horrible incident are at a much deeper level. And so I think 
all of us continue to learn. And, and, and as it relates to our own success, for us to make an exponential change in the quality and the power of our life requires us to surrender something. We have to move from the way we are to a new way. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this, uh, I love Charles Dickens and I love A Christmas Carol. And some people forget that when Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by, he's visited by actually four ghosts, not three. And the first ghost is his ex-partner. And then the ghost of Christmas uh, past, present, and future. And his partner's name is Jacob Marley. And one of the things that Marley says to Scrooge before setting up the other ghosts is he says, Scrooge, in life we forge the chains that bind us. And most of us drag around those, cha those chains. See, I told you my mother was an asshole. See, I told you I wasn't going to get that job. See, I told you I couldn't lose that weight or whatever it is, right? And so there's a surrendering. Um, and so those of us who are willing to surrender um, part of ourselves for the possibility of who we can become in the future to create a different future for ourselves. If you want to create a different future, whether it's in business for your company or your medical practice or different future for you and your family and your community, that means it's going to be different. <laughs> that means you have to be open to uh, a new potential uh, and you have to be open to a new um, uh, perspective on yourself, your debt, your self definition. For some people, it certainly was for me when I learned this. You can design your life. That's a radical fucking idea. Most people just listen to the way we talk. Most people think life happens to them. How's life treating you, Omar? Like life's the weather. And look, there's a component of life that's a we the weather. If I get cancer, I, f I get cancer, and I didn't bring that on. However, um, you're talking to somebody who has designed his life, and nothing in my life is an accident. And so, um, and in order for me to have the life that I wanted, I had to be willing to surrender the things that I didn't want in my life. <laughs> and that's true for all no, of I can us. Completely and that's true in business agree. as Just well. A, you know, just to add, add to that, and again, this is a big reason why I was excited to have on the podcast. We're going to get into categories, and I think the more importantly, in my, in my opinion, I, I feel like the great, great entrepreneurs, great marketers, great leaders, um, sure, on the professional side, they're damn good what they do, but in reality, they're people who are great philosophers, and that doesn't mean they know their great thinking. It's the types of actions they take, which is what philosophy teaches, you know? Um, so, you know, something that you said that uh, reminds me uh, from the prisoner, uh, so in life, we towards genes that bind us. There's another saying that I like that I'll, I'll add to this, which is the habits of mind are like chains. They're too weak, too weak to be felt until one day. They're just too strong to be broken. And I absolutely agree with you. I think there's, on the, on the positive side today, I think the awareness of these things, that we are different, we have different experiences. I think it's important. I think being empathetic and understanding what it's like and recognizing that it's only you know certain people have way bigger walls for us to get over i i think that i i i think that's a good thing what i don't like and this is being extended everybody and i'm getting in a lot of trouble for saying this i think 
some a lot of people are looking for a reason to victimize themselves. And they're and more specifically they're looking for reason for excuse as to why something is not going the right way. Perfect example. I, I recommend people to read their books. Oh, you know, I'm not a good reader. Or Omar, I'm I'm like this. Or Omar, um, this happened. And for me, I think that all in your head. You get to decide when you want change. And more importantly, I think the perception of your life is up to you. I mean, look, guys, Victor Frankl wrote, wrote Man's Search for Meaning, where he was living in Auschwitz in Nazi concentration camp. He found a way to put meaning to life survive. So if that guy could do that in Auschwitz, you sure as hell, young 20-something-year-old trying to get a job, can just, like, level up and say, you know what? All these things that I think are hindering me, it's not them. Because these are all things that are in your head. The past that you have, your childhood, all these things. Am I crazy to say that? Is that, is that taking it too far? No, not at all. And I also want, just as a side note, I, I want you to know it's your okay audio is side. breaking up a lot on my side. What is I'm it okay on your side? Lower the gain a little bit. And that might that might help. Yep, I All think right. that's going to help. It seems to be your internet connection because your um, hmm. your okay. uh, video I, is foggy I on think my it'll be end okay. as well. Yeah, I'm as long as, as long as you're getting, getting clear audio on your side, I'll, you know we can work with it for oh, sure. It won't. I just yeah, it's, it, that's if, the if reason, reason why I what... used uh, uh, Riverside. And let me make a note as to when this happened. Thirty thirty six is um yeah. It'll it it records locally, so it'll be it'll be fine. But I apologize if it's break it's if it's breaking out. But you under you can understand what I'm saying though, right? Okay, but thanks for pointing. Thanks no, for it's no problem. That I, I, I can work with it. Yeah, yeah. So getting back to the conversation, not only are you not crazy. Okay. Yeah, just check it in post-production, uh, that's all. Um, uh, so not only are you not crazy for saying what you're saying, uh, I, like you, um, am a big reader. And as a dyslexic, of course, reading is a huge commitment, uh, at least it is for me. Uh, but one of my favorite authors is Richard Bach. And in the book Illusions, he says, argue I, I, for your limitations. It. And, and, and just, sure to, enough, just to point something out, this is part of this podcast is for all the people who follow me, who are mentees, who are trying to learn. I'm trying to teach them also, like, hey, here's what I had to learn as a student still going. Um, right there on that shelf, Richard Bach Illusions is sitting right. I'm going to try and point to it right here. Why is that sitting there? It's because somebody who I follow, who I respect and admire, this gentleman right here on this podcast, one day tweeted about it. If there's somebody you look up to, somebody who you respect and you're like, I want to learn from them, you don't even have to talk to them. Just pay attention. Listen to them, what they say. They might say it in an offhand comment on a podcast. They might write about it. Take action on that stuff. Instead of going and spending $5 on a Starbucks Get your Amazon account out. Just buy the book. Buy it. You don't have to read it. Just throw it in your shelf. Buy it and get to it. Take action on the people who you look up to. That's how I think you start moving up in life. Instead of waiting, we all I think we all wait for this like Obi-Wan Kenobi type that's going to come into our life and then groom us. And I think it's bullshit. 
I, I couldn't agree more. The other thing to go back to Viktor Frankl about this whole victim mindset, one of the things he clearly rails against in Man's Search for Meaning is uh, fake victimness or victimhood, uh, fake suffering. So there's a, there is, and he's one of, I think, the greatest thinkers of all time, and I've read that book more times than I can count. Um, and he has cultivated that in me. You know, these people, these woe is me people, like they don't have any ability to um, control their life or design their life, who make themselves victims. There's a very big difference between that and you got diagnosed with a horrible cancer or you just lost one of your parents or a dear friend of yours just died tragically or, um, you know, in, in, in our family, we've had to suffer um, a murder and a horrible accidental death within nine months of each other. That's real suffering. We are in the, I'm not a big fan of the word victim, but the four evil fucks who killed my brother from another mother inflicted pain and suffering on his family and everybody who loves him. Uh, And we are victims of those killers. We are. That's very different than, I didn't get what I wanted. Yeah. Right. Uh, as, as you can tell, I have very little sympathy for that. So there is there are real situations in life where horrible things happen to us. And oh, we I, have I to love be that. Worthy of I, I, that. suffering. worth. And. Um, and we have to learn to walk through fire. I believe it was Churchill who said, if you find yourself walking through fire, keep walking. And you have to you have to look into that suffering um, and carry that suffering and be worthy of that pain oh, and absolutely. suffering and those, the pain and suffering of those around you. That's real shit. You know, I think doctors are angels and doctors deal with people who are at their most vulnerable times, uh, their most concerning times. And doctors have to have, in some cases, horrible conversations with individuals and their families and they're angels for doing that. My doctor, Dr. Uh, Kathy Halston, has been my doctor for 25 years. She is an angel on this earth. And she gives it to us straight every time. And that's what legendary doctors do. They help us walk through that fire. And it angers me when people are uh, self-victimized for no other reason than that they're whiners and complainers. There's a very big difference between you're dealing with a severe life-threatening medical situation. Yeah. And I know I completely agree. And I think you don't link the this idea of reflection, you. reflection and controlling designing your life is such an important one. Um, sometimes when really bad things that, you know, they happen in my life, I always try to pretend that we live in a, like a simulation of, let's say there's a video game just for me and it's going to turn out just fine. So I try and think this really shitty thing that just happened to me happened to me for a reason. And I think it's a good one. It could be a terrible thing. I mean, I've like, this is, you know, I don't want to get into like personal stuff, but like as an example, one, you know, many years ago, I was a young manager. I was doing, I was killing it in my job and I was expecting a promotion. I walked in one day on my wife's birthday, expecting to have a discussion about a promotion and I got laid off for no reason. I got walked out of the building and I remember calling my wife that day and said, this is the best day of, of, of my career. And she said, what, did you get a promotion? I'm like, no, I got laid off. 
And she's like, why is this good? I was like, I was like, I don't know. I was like, this happened for a reason. So the next job I get, this is going to be, it's going to be an even better job. I'm going to make even more money. It's going to be the next level up in my career. And that's exactly what happened. Not because I had wishful thinking, but by, because I took action on it versus at that moment inside, I was freaking out thinking, oh my God, how am I going to pay bills? I'm in, I live in Silicon Valley. I don't know anybody here. I think it's all very much controlled within how you decide to perceive about it. And again, to, to quote one of my favorite sayings of yours is thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking you'll do. And I think that's so important. Yes. So let me nudge you a little bit on that. I think in general, what you just said is a powerful mindset and you can't put whipped cream on dog shit. So, uh, one of my closest friends being murdered in a, a 3 a.m. home invasion by four evil men. Um, there's nothing good that comes from that. Zero. Um, there was no purpose for that. He did not deserve that. This everything happens for a reason. This didn't happen for a reason other than there is pure evil in the world. Uh, when we lost my brother-in-law in a horrible accident, same thing. There's no good in that. It fucking sucks. And it's going to fucking suck forever. And it's going to hurt forever, period. And one of the things is somebody who's had to deal with uh, life-challenging grief is a lot of the platitudinal bullshit that people try to say to you. Oh, the first year's the hardest. Nah, nah. Go fuck yourself. Okay? Somebody tore a piece of my soul out, and it's not coming back. Now, will we learn to live with the injury? Yes. Do we learn to walk through the fire and keep walking? Yes. In, in my case, the only way to get through it is uh, with friends, family, and faith. But there's nothing good that has come from those things. Now, I would argue it has made us stronger. I think that's true. Um, it has increased our empathy for others who suffer extraordinarily. So if you want to call that good, okay, but I would surrender all of that in a nanosecond to have them back. One was a tragic accident and the other was an execution of pure evil. And so I just, uh, I'm much more aware of this pablomatic, um, soundbite oriented pop psychology bullshit. Um, this kind of pain and suffering, you know, if you have cancer and you're going to die, what there is to know is you have fucking cancer and you're going to die. And the guy I know just had that happen to him and he knows he's got five years to live. He's actually a physician. And, and so the, the flip side of this stuff is a powerful relationship with fucking reality. And as somebody who's lost people in his life, I can tell you, um, if you're confused when somebody you love is dying, you're in a very, very bad place. And if you love that person, my opinion, you have a conversation with them that deals with it. When my stepmother was dying, I said to her, is there anything you want to do? Do you need to see the pyramids? You know, 
what is there left for you to do that you want to do? And she looked me straight in the eye and she said, you know what? I don't really want to clean my house or do laundry anymore. I said, all right, you find the person that you want to have do that and I'll pay for it. And that's exactly what I did. However, if you're not willing to look that person you love in the eye and deal with the reality that in this case, she had a horrible form of fucking cancer and she was not going to be around for much longer. You don't get to have those no bullshit conversations. And so, yes, I believe a lot of things have a purpose and sometimes they don't have a purpose. They just I agree. fucking suck. Something I shitty agree. happens. And if period. I could, if I can add, I'll share something in terms of, of, I guess a little deeper meaning about what I mean, because you're absolutely right. I think, um, no matter how you want to perceive certain things, some things are just really, really bad. The death, you know, death of a loved one. My uncle's wife passed away during COVID. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's really no way, there's no way to spin that. Um, man, that's a hell of a cat, by the way. For those of you who are listening and not watching this live, I'm sorry that you didn't get to see this fantastic cat. That's a great cat. He probably heard the conversation. His name is Bean. And he, he ran and he's yeah, like, he's like, man, this shit is getting minute, way sure. too, way too His serious. Let me, Bean, let me run. Uh, let me actually... <laughs> no, he see, just came is, over. This is the show that you can do that. He just came over. I can't. And oh, I can't. Me. Hi, buddy. I can't. I wish I could. Uh, can you hear him purring? Can you hear him purring? He purrs pretty loud. So anyway, he probably, he even noted, though he, um, he, felt he he's he, born a cat, yeah, he identifies as a dog. Oh, I love it. He probably you, noticed, you noticed that. that you're a little, 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 little distressed. So I, I'm, I'm gonna, sh- so I'm gonna share something. I'm going to uh, warn you. No, he knows. I might uh, choke a little bit, but I, I think it's important. So uh, when I when I left medical school, um, so f- fortunately for me, uh, growing up, I had a wonderful father. My dad was a general surgeon, but first generation immigrant. Both my parents are from the Middle East. I love my father. He's still alive, thank God. Um, he's a great father, but he was he was very tough on me growing up. I, I recognize that, but I still have a great father. I'm I'm lucky. So when I'm when I was younger, and I met older men who identified as strong men, men of character, I was very drawn to them because of the relationship I had with my father. And one of those men was Chris Sells when I started my career, and Chris Sells was like. I would say take take a Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, that that persona, that energy, that was him. And he was a legend in our industry. And unfortunately, he passed away at a very young age uh, a few years ago. Um, his wife, you know, he was washing, washing the car for his wife. He went out, she went out to see and he was, you know, on the driveway dead uh, in his in his early 50s. Caught us by surprise. I've had death in my family. I, I've I've had death of friends. I don't remember a time where I cried as hard as many times. And even today, and I told you I was gonna try try not to choke up. Even today, sometimes I think about him and I get choked up. On my desk here, I have one of the posts that he wrote on LinkedIn about what it means to be a a leader. And that fucking sucked. It, it hurts me to this day that he's gone. The way I try and take that moment of his death and think about what can I, what can I do about this? It was this one pearl. My biggest regret 
was that I didn't call him enough because I always felt that as a young man, oh, I, I don't want to call cells. I don't want to bother him because he was, he was older than me. He was an executive. So I felt afraid to do it. I just didn't want to bother him. But I did reach out times and there was, I will never forget the day that it, it felt so good. It was a Monday. I was working. He called me out of the blue. And so I, I don't even know what I was doing, but I stopped everything. I was like, oh, Chris Sells is calling. I answered the phone. And I was like, hey, Sells, what's going on? He called me out of the blue to share that he took on a new role as a leader just to share the news with me and tell me about how excited he was and what he's looking for. And I remember thinking as a young guy, like, I was like, this guy called just to tell me this. And so the two lessons I take from that is number one, if there's somebody that I want to reach out to, somebody I look up to, MR, I, I'm just going to fucking do it. You're one of those people. Another person who I was lucky to get mentored by and I have a cell phone is, is uh, are, do you know Scott Adams? <laughs> I know. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of him. So he's do, another yeah, person. I've, I've, I, thought, I mean, how can you not one be day, a fan? If he passes, I'm, I'm going to regret it. And the other thing that changed my actions is that anybody who I mentor – and there's a lot of young guys who like any day of the week, they, they want to just chat with me and I try and keep that in mind. So when I talk to them, I'll try calling them out of blue, just check on them because I know how much that, that will mean to them that somebody actually gives a shit about what they're doing. And I always try and tell them again, I'm not a guru or anything, but I know I can identify when somebody looks up to me. The most powerful thing that Chris Sells ever told me was when I was at my lowest he always told me, he's like, look, I, I believe in you and I'm, I'm proud of you, you know? And so that's how I try and think about these like really shitty things that happen is that what, how can I take this thing and influence my actions and everything moving forward to make my life better and beautify whatever, whatever else is around me. But to your point, there are some of these things that they, they just suck. There's no other way to, to look at it. Yeah, I, Absolutely. Yes, and we continue forward. And uh, thank you for that yeah. story about uh, yeah, and same same Chris to you. That's I'm, that's a I'm that's a that's, that's a really loss. difficult thing to go through. Like. Um, I, I can't I can't I can't say that I understand because I've never been through what you just described. But that's very very difficult. Um, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I I hope so too. I really really hope you never do. And there's um. Don't even get me started on the murder monetizing media, the assholes at uh, 48 hours. Do you know Inc. Magazine right now is writing a big story? I did not, but if you want to talk about, about my murdered brother, those pieces of shit, they've turned into a clickbait factory that wants to write TMZ bullshit, and they're harassing his friends and family. It's disgusting enough when 48 Hours does it. Pieces of shit. And now Inc. Magazine. After I put their fucking editor on my podcast, they are doing a giant story to monetize his murder and harassing his family and pouring salt in the wounds of, a, of, 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 a, of the parents, the 80-year-old parents of a murdered son. Inc. fucking Magazine who's supposed to be the champion of entrepreneurs because my friend Tushar was a legendary entrepreneur. Is, Fucking I don't even know how to respond to that. What is, what is your, what is your friend's, what is your friend's name? Tushar? It's disgusting. 
His name is Tushar Atre. Well, uh, for he's whatever. Indian. He was Indian. Yeah. And he's a legendary entrepreneur here in Silicon Valley. And those pieces of shit at Inc. Magazine are working on a story right now harassing his entire friends and family. And, and, and they won't leave his parents alone. And neither will CBS 48 Hours. They're pure, these people are pure evil. They, they monetize murder and suffering for profit. And they're so, particularly in the case of Inc. Magazine, 48 Hours has always done it. They've always been disgusting. Uh, but Inc. Magazine is supposed to be the champion of entrepreneurs. And now they so desperately need clickbait that this is what they do. They're pieces of shit. Scott Amalonic, the editor of Inc. Magazine. I don't know how much, is you, know, um, you know, what value this is, but I, I can just say this is that for me, from my family history and the way I was raised and the way I'm, I build my family, there's a big emphasis on honor. And I've never heard such a dishonorable thing on the show. And so I can tell you this, I'm, I'm going to have, I'm, I don't know if I have one, but if I have any subscription to ink, I'm canceling it. I'm going to have nothing to do with that, uh, with that, uh, entity. And especially, I'm glad you mentioned the name of the person because in this world, there have to be consequences to your actions. You cannot just do whatever you want very much. So just like online people, people, every, everybody's a tough guy online. Everybody likes to talk shit and they forget that these things have real world consequences. And so if you want to act dishonorably, there are, there are consequences. There are severe consequences to that. I'm very happy you mentioned that. If you are a listener of the show, I recommend you cancel your ink subscription and have nothing to do with that magazine, including if you see any article by them, don't read it, don't click on it. So for whatever it's worth, um, I can pledge that on my end. Yeah. It's evil. And it just shows how it desperate is. they are. They'll do anything for clickbait. Yeah. Why do you think we've gotten to a point like that in the media? Sorry, not to go down this rabbit hole, but I, I, I'm wondering what, how, what, what you think about it. Do you think it's because we've li we've gotten to a point in the world where, const you know, people don't they don't care, there's just no concept of honor anymore? Why 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 are the, why is the world like this? Let's just look at the U.S. media right now and just the U.S. in general. Absolutely. Okay. You really want to go into this? Let's go. Um, my biggest fear right now for the United States, and if you look at what's going on in Canada right now and in other parts of the world, the disease is, is, is not just an American disease. Far from it. What's going on in Ottawa, Canada right now is absolutely disgusting. So here's what I think is going on. Uh, I think the media, social media, and the government have all realized that in the short term, they can win by monetizing hate. So when we are angry, we will support political candidates with donations. We will vote for a certain party or individual. When we are angry, we will um, spend more time on fuckbook which, as far as I'm concerned, is a pure evil company. Um, and so, and then it, when we're angry, 
we will watch more news media and we will consume more news online. And so whether they re- whether they wanted to or not, I'm not suggesting a conspiracy, far from it. But both politicians in both parties, I'm a radical independent, um, have learned that if they monetize hate, they can win in the near term. They can raise more money and they can get elected. And in the media business, they've realized that um, the more sensational it is, the stupider it is, the more outrageous it is, the more they will uh, get that clickbait going. And in the business world, a lot of the business media is now like this. You know, you look at uh, that's you a look great, at people who were once respected, you, like a Scott Galloway, who's turned yep. himself into a joke. I'm, I'm so happy. Well, I was thinking about why this did the that happen? Day. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the man. Scott Galloway, the uh, uh, what were you thinking? Professor at NYU, correct? Bald, uh, bald guy with with glasses. He, uh, yep. Because what I was thinking was. This man has such fantastic insights. He he has a, a very sharp way of looking at the world. And then I started noticing that like he would start, you know, ranting on things that I didn't give a shit about to see. And the only thing I could see is that he's doing this to get attention. Just complete garbage. You know? And so we live at a time where the more outrageous you are and the crazy you are, the more attention that you get. And assholes like Gary V have told everybody that that's what you want to do. You want to get the most amount of attention. And so, so the level of outrage that you can engender increases the attention, which increases bullshit you can sell people whether that's ads on uh, msnbc or fox news or whether that's clicks on facebook or whether that's political donations it's all the same thing and so we are at a point in time where uh, our media and our government monetize hate and so they have to create the hate or or or, or stimulate the hate to to make more money it's that simple Mm. And uh, I had this aha over the holidays, Omar, which mm-hmm. is my biggest fear in our country right now. I'm is with we've you. Lost the ability to have authentic dialogue. I, I mean, it's if that's not clear to you, you're not paying attention. And um, that neither party is going to address this. I was disgusted by Biden's speech on January 6th because mm-hmm. there wasn't an olive branch. To Trump supporters, not that I heard, and I listened very carefully for it. Um, and so here's the aha. The politicians in the media and social media, and particularly Facebook, uh, although others, um, make money when we hate each other. And we are now at a moment in time in the modern era. This has never been true. It's not been true since, you know, the Civil War, essentially. More Americans hate more Americans than ever before, and most Americans think the biggest threat to America is other Americans. That has not happened in the modern era. So my biggest fear is violence around the midterms and violence around the 2024 election. And the question I ask people is, 
do you think, based on what's happened in the last handful of years in the United States, that uh, we are more likely or less likely to have violence around the 2022 midterms and the 2024 uh, I'm going to guess election. that most people say, no, it's not going to get worse. And what do you think worse. the answer I get most of the time is? Hmm. I actually did a poll on LinkedIn. It was about 50-50. Now, here's what I know from a business perspective. You can't sell Teslas, software, mm-hmm. or washing machines if our major cities are on fire. We saw what happened in the summer of 2020. We saw what happened on January 6th. These are very bad things for business. Never mind the horrible things they are for our society, the murders that take place, the property that gets destroyed. But I think if you're a business person, you need to realize, my just my opinion, not everybody agrees clearly that the biggest threat to your 2022 business plan is violence in the United States around the elections. And the other aha is not only do the politicians and the media stoke it because they profit from it, therefore they're not going to do anything to damp it down. It's not in their best interest. So if you believe that, and I know a lot of people don't, but if you do, the aha here, at least for me, goes like this, Omar. If we want to see a material decrease in violence in the United States and hate in the United States, it's up to business leaders and community leaders, because the media I, and the I politicians aren't hardly agree. It. And you know, while we're on the topic, if you don't mind, because um, I don't get to talk about this too often with anybody, but I completely agree. And if you just take the emotion out of it, the business model works for politicians and media. So why why would you stop? Right? We all want to believe that everybody has good intentions, but if the business model works for somebody, it's kind of like if you follow the money, you'll find the truth, right? So if the upside is a lot, a lot of money and the downside is there aren't really any consequences, people will choose money. Um, I think that when you see on social media, there's um, – and I can't say this is, this is my, uh, my thinking. This is something that I took a screenshot a long time ago. Uh, actually, back in 2013, I found it. And it goes something like this, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little from far from left field, but bear with me on this, is that Satan – and I'm not a I'm not a a, a church going religious person, but I would like to think I'm religious in a in a way. We're all religious, even if even even atheists, in my opinion. Satan is an ancient AI that keeps showing humanity how to create technology to bring it into existence, and it's a historical pattern that happened many times before. And for biblical scholars, you can look at the old you know old and New Testament and wonder why they're so different. And so. I mentioned this because if you think about AI, what is AI really? It's a centralizing technology, meaning it's going to centralize something that's going to have a pattern around it. Uh, LinkedIn, you're starting to see it uh, a little bit, but the perfect example is Twitter. What are the things that are usually trending? It all has to do with outrage, hate, anger, resentment. And um, you're in the Valley, our dear friend, Eric Hoffer, back in the forties and fifties, who wrote about radicalizing people. Like why did... Why did Germany, why was Hitler able to create uh, Nazis and, and make these people do extremely horrendous things? Men and women and, and humans do not rally around things that they love. They unify around a common hatred. 
And when there's that hatred, it becomes very easy to organize people and direct that energy and force towards something. This is why, in my opinion, right when the 2020 elections uh, uh, ended, you saw certain political parties who were unified literally turn against each other because a common enemy was no longer there. And so the business model of outrage and hatred is very strong. And, and to an earlier point you and I were talking about, which is this victimization, a part of that is if you victimize yourself, you've also created something to hate, a common enemy. And so these things are just getting rewarded all day constantly. And I think you're absolutely right that it takes individuals, and I would say like ourselves, business leaders, community leaders, to model the right behavior to say this is the way that you live a life of like honor and discipline and not this this garbage and trash. I agree with that. Hmm. And I think there's an overlay on it that is fascinating. Um, we need to get Bean a mic, man. I'm loving which it. Which is, hi Bean. <laughs> Bean, I'm sorry. Buddy? I'm like, I'm, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> which is, there's actually, there's actually two. Here, I'll, here, you can really get a good. He keeps coming back. Here. He's like, dude, why are you talking about <laughs> these intense topics? He's a supermodel with, with my, with my, he's, with um, my dad. Like, you know. He's, oh, that's he's why he's so Maine big. Coon. That's why he's so big. Maine Coon. For those who can't see it, this is a. Big, big goddamn cat. <laughs> yeah, he's part Maine Coon. He's 15 pounds, which by Maine Coon standards is not huge. If he was a purebred, he might get to 20. And I, I, I have a friend who has a 25-pound Maine Coon. So he's, but by, by, by normal cat standards, yeah, Bean's a big boy. So there's a couple overlays here that are connected. Mm -hmm. The first one is a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. So if you're a student of history, and I try to be, I'm not a historian, but um, I try to learn, and I try to learn from people who teach me things. Um, what you discover in the evolution of human beings is very simple. When human beings work together, amazing things happen. And when they don't, horrible things happen. And for the most part, we do work together. You know, we recently had uh, Alec Ross on my podcast, Follow Your Different, and he was a he was the technology lead for Obama's campaign, and then he became the lead innovation and technology advisor for uh, Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, and he's now an, and he had been an entrepreneur prior to that in the technology industry, and he's now a VC and a, a professor. Uh, and by the way, the week before. We had one of the highest profile um, law enforcement Republicans in the country, um, Dr. Cedric Alexander. He was the um, he was the president. He's the past president of the Black Police Chiefs Association of America. He was the police chief in um, the Cobb County in Georgia. Um, anyway, the difference between a scarcity mindset and abundance mindset. If you look at history, when human beings come together we can essentially do the following. We can fight over the bananas that we have and kill each other over them. Or we can say, hey, wait a minute, getting back to farming. Um, if we work together, maybe we can plant some more banana trees. And maybe all of us 
can eat and we don't have to fight over the bananas. So rather than fighting, let's go to farming. When you have that mindset that it is possible for human beings to create abundance, and look, I'm not an idiot. There's some scarce resources in the world and we have to be in tune to this. So caveat, caveat. But in general, and this is why I love entrepreneurship, entrepreneurs create abundance. They create value where prior there wasn't. Um, my life, and I think your life from everything I understand, uh, has been about creating abundance. Uh, I'm the result of immigrants, as are you. Um, our parents came to, in, this, in my case, North America, Canada, uh, and your parents came to America seeking a breakthrough in their life, right? A life that they could not have somewhere else. The ability to create a different future. And part of that was a more abundant future. And so what we know at the highest level is when human beings come together, we can create radical abundance that makes a giant difference. If you have a mindset that says, hey, wait a minute, you fucking immigrants are taking our jobs, by way of example. Or you fill in the blank are taking our fill in the blank. You have a scarcity and protection mindset. And so when you have a scarcity mindset, you're going to fight. Because there's only so many bananas. And when you have an abundance mindset, you say what my friend and mentor Iron Mike Stedman, Captain Iron Mike Stedman says, which is Mm -hmm. my goal is to lift as I climb. So fundamentally, um, it goes there. Where's your mindset? Um, And unfortunately... Scarcity speaks to fear. They're going to take my thing from me. And that's what drives votes and that's what drives clicks and that's what drives viewership. And so um, the real question is, fuck the media, fuck the politicians, fuck Facebook. What are you and I going to be guided by? More importantly, and I I always remind remind people, these entities you just mentioned, government, the media – these people are not, they are not your friends. They are not your family. They're not responsible for raising your children. They're not responsible for providing for you. They're not responsible for teaching you how to think. And I think the sooner that we realize this, the better. And, and Christopher, I just want to be uh, respectful of your time. I'm okay right now. Are you, are you good for a little, for a little, little longer? Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I also, I, by the way, I want to say, because nuance matters on the government stuff. Um, I, I know legendary people in government. There are many, 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 many people at all levels of government that I have met in some capacities, worked with, spent some time with. Absolutely. Who legitimately want to make a difference. That's why they're there. So I don't want – I'm not one of these anti-government idiots. I also – well, I think I pay too much tax, and I, I think uh, a lot of us pay – I think most of us pay too much tax. Uh, and I think there's a lot of waste in government, and you never fucking hear about cutting ever under the Trump administration. What are we cutting to fund something? Under the Obama administration, okay, we're going to do all this stuff, great, trillions and trillions and trillions. Are we cutting anything? Never. You never fucking hear it. Ever, no matter who's in public, uh, who's in office. Absolutely. But and that I agree. Said, and it would... I know there are legendary public servants 
in our government. Yeah, and I I, I agree. I so, think the, the uh, and bigger, I'm appreciative. The, the more important, I guess, nuance to the context that I've shared, which is, it's the entities that you don't rely on. So, like, if I talk about, for example, a certain country, I have no problem with the people. It's usually the 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 government, right? And but no, I'm I'm happy you 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 pointed out that 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 nuanced context. Um, to to get a little bit lighter, because I'm sure I'm sure everyone I'm sure, I know for a fact my audience is loving this, but let's 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 take a <laughs> a little bit a little bit of shit. Let's talk about some light categories. So, see, that was the that was the whole plan. Like we're gonna get on and we're gonna talk about life, death, politics, all these extremely heavy topics. Now, now we're it's like, hey, let's talk about category design and stuff. <laughs> but no, I I think, you know, maybe a good place to start uh, on that discussion. And I don't know who said this. Maybe I don't know. Maybe Steve Jobs. I'm, you know what? Fuck that. I'm just gonna say that I I I, I said this. I think great marketing, legendary marketing, as you call it, has a lot to do with values, right? Would, would you agree with that sentiment? Absolutely. Um, you know, John Mellencamp said, said, said it eloquently, you got to stand for something, you're going to fall for anything. And uh, one of the fascinating things about being alive today is there is a vibrant and active discussion about what the role of companies are in the world. And there is a huge discussion around this topic called impact. Um, and I think that's very, very powerful. I think um, companies can do great things in the world. Look, do they do evil things? Absolutely. But they do many legendary things. Um, and, you know, the... <laughs> going back to uh, the legendary Marty Cooper, the mobile phone has raised over a billion people out of poverty. That's an extraordinary thing. You look at where we are in the medical profession, in medical science, um, what our doctors do, what they can do today as a result of uh, whether it's, you know, the, the miracle that is the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, um, my father-in-law several years ago when he was in his mid eighties had heart valve surgery and the doctor who performed that surgery said to me five years prior to that, the technology did not exist and he likely would have died. Um, we had a guy on, on, on the podcast who is uh, quote unquote, the world's number one longevity investor yes. named Sergey Young. He's written a new book. I think it's called the art and science of growing young. And he says that the the oldest person to have lived now, I believe, is somewhere around 120. And he's in his late 40s, a little younger than me. And he said he can virtually guarantee me that he will live to 120. And he builds out an argument for why based on all that he knows about what's coming. And so when you look at the commitment of our medical professions, our medical professionals, and you add to that, um, the science and the technology that is being applied, um, the innovation we're going to see in the next five years is greater than the innovation we saw in the last 25 years. And I'm not an expert in med tech, but um, uh, one of the, the number one health te healthcare investor, I believe, in the world is Brian Roberts at Venrock. And I know Brian. Um, he's been on my podcast, oh, and we've done a few things together. And uh, actually, we just booked, booked him to come back. 
uh, an extraordinary guy with a g- gigantic, gigantic <laughs> brain. I, uh, he, needs, he actually needs a neck brace to uh, support the size of his cranium. Um, but what, what people like this tell me is that what we're seeing in medical, whether it's Sergey Young or Brian, Brian Roberts or, or others, what they explain to me is that the, the breakthroughs that we have recently had and are building upon um, are extraordinary and incredibly exciting. And it uh, allows um, our doctors and nurses and medical professionals who are angels to do things in the world that are extraordinary. Well, guess what? Profit-making companies build a lot of that shit. Some of it's government-funded, and, and uh, great. And by the way, I think when, when there can be legendary private-public partnerships, I think that's extraordinary. Um, and I know it happens a lot in the, in the medical field. Um, really? And, you know, we had Gary I'm, Kasparov this is on, 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 on the podcast. On, He's the not on Lockheed or Mark time. He's on, Russian. Um, follow your difference. Yeah. I'm still making yeah, my way incredible. down, so... <laughs> I, I I did oh, I different. did alien thinking the other day. That was a great one, by the way. Right. Thank you. The, the a very fun book, Alien Thinking. Um, anyway, Kasparov said something to me on the podcast that stopped me in my tracks. He's a very uh, outspoken uh, opponent of uh, Putin. And he said, isn't it interesting that this disease was born in a communist country and solved in free capitalist countries led by America? And, of course, many Europeans contributed and so forth. And it was a statement that I hadn't thought much about, but what and I'm sort of synthesizing what I think he said, but what I think he was commenting on is when you have a free society and you have a profit motive, um, smart people apply themselves to solving really big problems. You want to talk about category design, category design fundamentally is about, um, is Mm. about figuring out how we solve the biggest problems and make the biggest difference. That's really mm-hmm. fundamentally what it's about is identifying new and different problems and therefore new and different solutions. And one of my other favorite quotes is Einstein, the problems of today will not be solved at the same level of thinking that created them. And legendary entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial scientists and medical professionals um, have led the way and have led the way out of this crisis with this fucking disease we've been afflicted with. And that, I think, was Kasparov's point. And so I think this is something that that cannot be lost is uh, how we harness human innovation and the the human spirit to make a giant difference and move us exponentially forward. And we do that in part through um, legendary entrepreneurship and legendary capitalism. And I'm not saying there aren't bad things about that. And I'm not saying there aren't evil people who are capitalists. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying don't fuck over workers. Yes. There's shit that needs to get dealt with. And Kasparov's point remains. Free capitalist societies with America leading the way got us out of this fucking mess. That is a mess. very fascinating and a communist point. society and I've never got considered us into it. Like that, that was his point, and I thought correct. it was fascinating. I want to double-click on something you mentioned uh, earlier, which in, in my opinion, I, and again, I like to consider myself a very good student. You know, I've, I've gone through 
the books. I've read uh, uh, all your newsletters. I've listened to a lot of the you know uh, episodes that you've been on, Al Ramadan, and anybody who's done anything close to category design. This concept, and I want you to sort of riff a bit on this, is that it's not about disruption because that indicates that you are taking something in an existing market and trying to make it better. And you've, the two words that have been sort of burned into my uh, mind is idea of new and different. Could you kind of dive in, dive deeper into that concept? Yes. And I don't know if it's as prevalent in the medical world as the word disruption. <laughs> they they throw it around. Is that all something the time? that gets talked it's, about a lot in they, medical they technology? Talk, they talk about and, disruption and, so and transformation, um, but a lot of it's just like incremental improvements on the same old shit from before. So, and, and this is the part that that really irks me. Yeah, let's 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 take that. Okay, so let's take disruption and transformation. So. Um, disruption is a word I think we need to fucking retire. We've had plenty of disruption. Thank you very much. Um, and there's a very big difference between disruption and creation. Les Paul, one of my heroes, is a legendary category designer, and I have his guitars hanging behind me. Les Paul, best I could tell was not trying to disrupt the acoustic guitar. He was trying to create the electric guitar. And in so doing, he made the pie bigger for everyone because most guitar players have at least one acoustic guitar and one electric guitar. It's a new use mm -hmm. case. It's different. It didn't disrupt shit. And the legendary entrepreneurs, creators, scientists... Uh, artists, musicians, uh, medical professionals are people who are trying to create something exponential. Now, in some cases, it disrupts the way that it is. That does happen. I'm not an idiot about that. But it is one thing when you say, I want to disrupt something, and it is a very different thing to say, I want to create something. As well, disruption, by definition, mm -hmm. is a backward-leaning lens. Because when you say disruption, you mean disrupt the way it was and is. So when you say disruption, you are grounding yourself in the past. We're going to disrupt the way it's been and the way that it is. Same thing with transformation. Transformation, just like disruption, assumes that it is the way that it is. We're going to take the way that it is, and we're going to transform it. There's a very big difference between transformation and creation. Les Paul was not, create, was not transforming the acoustic guitar. He was creating the electric guitar. Airbnb did not sit there. Their business, look, I know the guys that funded them. Their business plan was not, wow, we're going to disrupt the hotel industry. No. Their vision was, we have, we have a shortage of, of space in San Francisco, and wouldn't it be great if I could rent somebody's couch? 
And wouldn't it change the experience for travelers and visitors to, to a place to stay in somebody's home versus stay in a hotel? And wouldn't it be great if you had extra space in your home, or maybe you weren't there all the time, if you could monetize that space or that vacancy? And those were the ideas. And they were creating a new thing, which they did. It's a new category. And their point of view is a very powerful one, which is um, uh, don't go there, live there. Don't visit Paris, live like a local in Paris. And, and Brian uh, Chesky, the founder and CEO of Airbnb, right now, if you go on his Twitter, you'll see it. It's fantastic. He threw the gauntlet full, down full for himself year, yeah. recently and said, I'm going to live, I think it's a year. It might be two. But you could check his Twitter feed out. Full year on Airbnb. And I'm going to move around every two or three weeks or whatever he's going to do. And he's going to go all around the world. And he's going to live in Airbnbs nonstop for a world. And I think he's planning to blog and tweet and and so forth about it. He's literally living the category that he designed. And in so doing, he's doing what every legendary category designer does, which is evangelize a different approach. And so disruption and transformation are backward-looking lenses. And when you have a backward-looking lens, you tend to, whether you realize it or not, be working on something that is incremental because you're starting with the current premise. Category design starts off by saying, we reject the premise. Category design starts with saying, it's five years in the future. It's 10 years in the future. It's 15 years in the future. And this new, this different future that we see looks like Great this. guy. And then my friend Mike Maples, the legendary venture capitalist, Floodgate Capital, calls this backcasting, great guy, legendary guy. He calls this backcasting as distinct from mm. forecasting. Forecasting is I stand in the present and I look forward. Well, when you do that, whether you realize it or not, that lens is a lens that tilts you towards the future will be a continuation of the past. If you're somebody who wants to do something exponential, You assume the future is something that will be different than the past. Well, you, if you're disrupting the current premise, you're in the past. When you're creating a different future, you're designing a new category. And, you're, and so what backcasting is, is I stand in the future five years from now, 10 years from now, etc. And I look back to what is now the present and I say, okay, what needs to happen? What do I need to get done? What headwinds and tailwinds do I need to be aware of? Who do I need to catalyze? What movement do I need to create via a powerful point of view that motivates people to this different future? And then I stand in that future and I pull the present towards me. You mentioned Steve Jobs. People used to say he had a reality distortion field. That's what they meant by that, which is, Jobs was living five years in the future, and he got pissed at you if you couldn't see what he saw. And so that's what legendary category design is about. That's fundamentally the power to create our lives, our businesses, our medical practices, and entire new market categories for new innovations of services and products. That's the mindset, whether they realize it or not, that the most legendary scientists, medical professionals, entrepreneurs, artists, 
um, that's the mindset that they have, right? Picasso was not disrupting impressionism. Absolutely, and he was creating. Uh, something I want to share for context, and I, I want your commentary on just. But uh, real quick, I mean, uh, with Picasso, you're absolutely right. I mean, another perfect example from the art world. What a lot of people don't realize is that Jackson Pollock had a brother. The reason why you never heard of Jackson Pollock's brother is because Jackson Pollock's brother painted exactly like his teacher. Like he didn't do anything different. It was the same boring stuff. Jackson Pollock decided to be Jackson Pollock, which is why you know about Jackson and not his brother, who I don't even remember his name. Um, you know, one of the things – oh, go for it. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go for it, please. Right. Here's another one I love in that regard, Omar. One more in that regard that is that I think is really fun. There are some total of zero cover bands in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Man, I'll tell you, maybe maybe because you're you're legendary at this, but you're on a fucking roll today. Because I've I'm I'm on page three right now of notes, just things that I'm enjoying. <laughs> but it's so so true. Some total of zero. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well, be careful if you let this insanity into your brain. You know, I think that's so. Uh, that's actually a perfect uh, kind of segue into the the thing I wanted to share. Um, you know, because I again, your your quote really had an impact on me because it's you know I, I would say when it comes to the per persuasion, I'm, I'm very big about persuasion psychology. If you're able to articulate something that's in somebody's head but they have not been able to articulate it themselves, that's extremely powerful in terms of persuasion and. For me, my thing about reflection and thinking, like, it was always there, but when I heard you say thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking you'll do, it really it really uh, clicked with me. And in studying category design, again, I the last five, six years, I've taken the books, I've applied it at different companies, and now, this year in 2022, on the year of my first child's birth, I've decided to launch on my own against a mission and vision that I've had since 2014, which is I'm going to change how we do sales and marketing in the medical industry, period, end of story. I'm going to do it. And part of that is a big part of that is category design. And when I was thinking about it in terms of how you do it, which you talk about evangelizing the problem and a point of view, not evangelizing your product. I'm wondering if you agree with this, with this, which is, and, and again, you mentioned how Steve Jobs would look into the future and he would get frustrated if you can't see that future that he saw. I think a lot of people and companies don't do category design. Like they, not only well, they do it bad, is because it requires a few things. One is to talk about something that 99% of people are gonna look at and say, that's fucking stupid or this is a joke, or this is a toy. And I think Airbnb is one example of that. I mean, Chris Saka told them at, at Y Combinator, like, hey guys, you should really wrap this up. Like people are gonna get killed and blood's gonna be on your hands. Uh, people told that to uh, the founder of Zoom. Like this is, there's nothing special about this. So people are ridiculing your idea because it's a toy. And I think the other side of it is that in some ways, it takes someone who's a little insane, maybe even obsessed by an idea to evangelize this problem and a new point of view. Because you go and show this, like what I'm doing in, 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 my, in my company, which is this idea of how do you sell and market and influence medicine using social media and these channels that doctors now like versus showing up to the hospital like an asshole. 
it takes showing it to people and say, oh, you know, this is not for you. That's okay. But I'm just going to go on and find somebody else. And I think we get stuck on the 99% of, of naysayers and haters who are, who are part of the market of any technology adoption curve. And the key is how do you evangelize and make a big enough fire that that small one, 2% of people who can see with their eyes closed and say, yeah, I see the same future you see and I'm, I want in. I think that takes a lot of courage. I think that takes almost a certain level of obsession and insanity to stick to because otherwise most people are just going to quit. What do you think about that? I think that's generally right. I think if you are on a mission to make an exponential difference, you're going to meet resistance. Einstein said great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. And what is very clear, if, if you study the people who have made the biggest positive change, what you realize is if it's not different, it doesn't make a difference. When my mother got her first job, she's in her 70s now, uh, 16 years old, summer job, um, she was working in a factory in Montreal, Canada. And next to her on the assembly line in the factory was a 16-year-old boy. And I forget the exact numbers, but I'll be directionally right. You know, she was making 50 cents an hour and he was making 75 cents an hour. Plus or minus. And the law in Canada and the law in the United States, if I understand it correctly, was that men made more than women. And I said to her, Mom, what line of bullshit did they feed women that made this okay? And here was the point of view. Here was the category design, the social category design of compensation. It went like this. This is what she told me. Well... Women are in the workplace for a very short period of time. They're going to get married and have children and stay home. And men need to provide for a family. And so because men are providing for a family, they should make more than women. And that was the fucking law. This and then a bunch of gals got together stand, and said, uh, to quote the big <laughs> Lebowski, this aggression will not stand, man. And... <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Sorry. Everything continue. great can be learned interrupt. in the Big Lebowski. <laughs> um, and then they created a radical. <laughs> they created a radical, different point of view to create a new category of law, a new category of thinking around the value of work and who does the work in order to affect exponential different change to create a different future and the point of view they developed was simple and powerful equal pay for equal work and it became a mantra and enough women stood up and said that and then men woke up and said you know what they're right and the law changed and so my point is if you want to make a difference, it requires being different. Now, the naysayers and so forth. Here's another powerful insight. 
My brother from another mother and fellow category pirate, Eddie Yoon, one of the smartest guys I've ever met. He's, he's written more on category strategy for the Harvard Business Review than any person alive Great or dead. Too. His first book is called Super Consumers. And it's a overly simple insight with profound impact that most people don't get. You'll get it if you read the book, which I highly recommend. And we've written a bunch about super consumers uh, in Category Pirates because it connects to category design. And here's the aha. Roughly 10% of any market category drive that category. That is to say they are the most profitable customers. But most importantly, they are the ones who live and breathe the category. And as a side note, one of the biggest problems in business is the lack mm. of uh, super consumers running companies. I forget his name now, but the the guy who runs the gaming business inside Microsoft is a is a radical super and consumer for the, for the, of gaming. For, and that's just, why they just, just bought to, Activision. Just to define it for those Blizzard. who haven't read it, I read Super Consumer he's a by Ian, fantastic book. Um, super consumers is a small percentage of a consumer of a product that are really, really, again, by definition, super consumers, just wildly obsessed. These are, you can say that these are the people that when Apple releases a new product, they're in line day one to buy the new product. They don't give a shit how it's going to work. They're, they're there to buy it. And, and, to, and I agree, but I want you to explain why. Why is that important that a company has that kind of person as part of leadership? If you're not a, if if your leaders aren't supers of your product, like it, it would be like having a musician who doesn't listen to music or a writer who doesn't read, right? You you you've got to be what about your in own like best medical customer. technology. And though? if you're not, why Sorry, are you leading what about the company? In like like medical technology where technically you are the super consumers. consumer of the product. Would that mean that you bring in a physician who lets? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not suggesting you should give yourself a heart transplant. <laughs> right? So that you can be a super consumer of heart transplants. But you have to understand if you're not a super consumer of the product, you're at a deficit. Here's one of the things um, that I think is a challenge for some doctors. I have a rare, unnamed, now diagnosed neuromuscular condition. And uh, I have a specialist at UCSF, Dr. Ann Ponsolet, who cares for me. And without her care and without the meds that I'm on, I could not live the life that I live. I would not be able to do anything physically active because the symptom that I experience is uh, extraordinarily debilitating and painful muscle cramps. Um, now, Ann Ponsolet does not have my condition. Therefore, she can't be a super consumer of the drugs that I'm on and the treatment that I'm on and the other things that I do to try to optimize my situation. She's smart enough to know that. And so if you can't be the super consumer of the product or service for obvious reasons, at a minimum, develop radical empathy for those super consumers and acknowledge that you can't be one. And when you acknowledge that you can't be one, 
You humble yourself. Martial artists talk about humbling themselves. You humble yourself in that you d- she doesn't know my pain. She doesn't know my fear. But you know what? I feel like she empathizes and I feel like she gives a shit. And I feel like she works for me and advocates for me. And I feel like if I reached out to her at any time, she would respond and she has. So even though she can't be a super consumer of the treatments that I must use, otherwise I can't have a physically active life. And I'm a very physically active guy. Um, She knows that. And it is very clear to me as her patient that she acknowledges she doesn't understand the way I understand. And she has radical empathy for me. And so if you can't be a super consumer, I think you have to get close to your super consumers and you have to develop that radical listening, radical empathy. And if you get close to your super consumers, particularly in situations where you can't be one, um, and you start asking them about their life and they start at, you start asking them about how and why they do the things they do around this category, in this case, a treatment, um, chances are you will have insight into what is missing for super consumers in the current category. And so legendary entrepreneurs listen for the missing because category design ultimately is about discovering a new problem or a new way to look at an existing problem and therefore coming up with a new solution. Though these new guys, I think, are they in Texas? I don't know. I, 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 I've been meaning to read more about these, these folks who have come up with a new uh, COVID vaccine using I, I, bat shit and those guys are, tails. Those guys are going to get... They're going to get canceled. Uh, elephant I just, eye I'm, I'm just going to call it. I have They're no idea. There's soon. a group of folks who have discovered. No, 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 no. This is a very real thing. I just barely read about it. And so I, I excuse, excuse me for being ignorant. Oh, I got to look them up. Uh, people are proposing them for, uh, for the uh, Nobel Peace Prize because what they did was they found, they found a, a way to get to a treatment, um, uh, get to a vaccine, excuse me. Um, and they open sourced it, and it's now being manufactured around the world. Um, and so um, that is you know, that's a that very powerful I, I exponential thing to do. And so the bottom line is, when you um, when you uh, look at supers and you have empathy, and you keep. Fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Everybody falls in love with the solution. They love their product. Fall in love with the problem. That's how you come up with a radically different vaccine that is radically cheaper based on easier to produce materials. Why is that important to fall in love with the problem? In their case, be radically generous and open source it. But the point being. Why fall in love with the problem? Fall in love with the problem, not the product. Correct. And look, people don't buy solutions unless they have fucking hum- problems. Humor me. And most people why, in business why, forget this. I why, want to tell you about our solution. Okay, well, what problem does it solve? God, they can't articulate the pull, problem. Pull, pull, that, pull a few layers back on me on that one. 
because problems are about customers and customers make up categories. Solutions are about us. If you really give a shit, you're focused on them. And the big aha here is human beings are arrogant. Until Copernicus, everybody thought that um, uh, the sun revolved around the earth. That's how arrogant we were. And they tried to kill him when he proposed something different because of the arrogance of human beings. So play that forward. We think that we make us successful. Well, the truth is other people make us successful. You make me successful. The beginning of this podcast, you talked about how, you know, wonderful all my shit is. I, I, I'm not successful unless you and a whole bunch of other people think my shit's wonderful. And yes, I have to create wonderful shit, but you have to think it's wonderful. You know, we, we recently wrote in, uh, we did a newsletter recently called The Big Product Lie. And we were on this exact point. And the argument we made is, you know, I like to play guitar and I like to sing songs and I like to go out to the beach with my friends and family and have a, a nice evening and have a few beers and sing a few songs. So uh, guess what? Bruce Springsteen plays guitar and likes to sing songs for his friends. And what's the difference between me and Bruce Springsteen? 250 billion fans. That's what he's got. I got five. Maybe 10. The fans are the difference. Other people make us successful. And so if you're focused on the problem, you're focused on the supers. You're focused on other people. People, when you add people together as a group, that's called a market category. And so people who are focused on the problem, companies, entrepreneurs, inventors, scientists, artists, politicians, are category designers because they're focused on the problems that the customers that they want to have have. Those of us who want to uh, kill Copernicus. I love it. I think we make a wholeheartedly agree. There's one last thing I want to talk about. Again, I want to be very mindful of your time. We're good. Yep. Okay. He, that's, that's, that's when you, when you were quiet there for some, I'm like, ah, shit. Yeah, I'm just I'm just googling to see if. No, I was just googling try, yeah, to see if try, I could try, figure try, out who the guys, try, who the try folks googling are. And I'll that, share um, share this with you. Um, so uh, you backs, but, and um, uh, the. No, that's it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's all we, good. We'll, we'll so get it. We'll get it after the podcast. Empire. I don't so again, get lost on the internet. I guess one of the benefits is that I'm trying to get share with you things that you might not ever find out. Um, are are a large part responsible for why I um, pushed and and essentially started the first in-house medical device podcast back in, I want to say 2016 or 2017, because this concept of not only evangelizing the problem, but just being, everybody talks about this crap of like customer centricity and we love our, like it's all bullshit. And then nobody really acts that way. And so for me, when I thought about physicians, I was like, well, how can I get closer to them? I was like, you know what? I should, we should start a podcast and have them come and just talk about the things they want to talk about, in which case they're going to talk about the problems and things that they struggle with the most. And so, for example, in, my la in the last company I was at, we started, a, you know, they, they focused on private practices. 
We started a podcast called Journey to Private Practice. I'm not a doctor. Well, I went to med school, but I dropped out. So I only got an M, not an MD. <laughs> but, and I don't own a practice. But the next way for me to become a true super consumer and be of the tribe is I'm going to have these people come on a show and we're going to talk about all the problems and the struggles, the triumphs, the successes they have about something that they care about. And in fact, you learn a lot. Not only that's going to help sales and marketing, but informs the product team and so on and so forth. And I think that the more people think about that rather than kind of this, this whole let's be customer centric, like people talk like that. they're just like empty words to me. Do you, do you, do you, would you, do you agree with that sentiment? Absolutely. It's bullshit. The truth is for a lot of companies, um, the That's... only people they hate more than their employees <laughs> are their yeah. customers. And that's because a lot of companies are run. A lot of companies are run by mercenaries. And look, I don't have a problem with mercenaries being capitalists. We live in a capitalist world, and I, I also don't have a problem with making money. Um, I've made a bunch of money in my life, and I think the profit motive is a very powerful motive when harnessed uh, appropriately. And um, it's one of the things that makes the United States of America legendary. It's one of the reasons I came here as an immigrant. I come from a very good country, an amazing country in Canada. But in my world, the technology world, um, it would have been impossible for me to have anywhere near the kind of career and life that I've had in Silicon Valley in anywhere in Canada. So if you're a songwriter, you go to Nashville. And if you're an actor, you go to Hollywood. And if you want to work in the tech startup world, uh, at least at that time, I think it's a lot less true today. Um, you come to Silicon Valley. Um, and so, so I, I, I think that's fine. That said, the most legendary entrepreneurs are on a mission. And they're on a mission to make a difference. And sometimes that difference is save the world or cure cancer or, or, or come up with a COVID vax. And sometimes that mission is um, we want to combine um, a burrito and sushi and come up with a new food that we call the sushi Rito, which solves a problem that most people never thought of, which is I love sushi. I want to be able to eat on the go. Burritos are great to eat on the go because they're kind of come wrapped already. What if we took a burrito concept and did it with sushi? Ta-da, sushi Rito. Well, that's category design. And that's not, that's not dealing with COVID, but you know what? Sushi readers are fucking awesome, and I'm glad they created the category, and it's a great product, and now there's a bunch of them, and they, I don't it's know these people, but they product. seem like wonderful entrepreneurs, and fucking A, that's great. And so, you know, there's a scale here of, of, of size. Right, and there's a scale of size, and there's a scale of making a difference and all that, but small E entrepreneurs who invent new categories like Sushi Rito make a huge difference. And when one entrepreneur rises up, she often not only takes herself, but takes her family and her community and every once in a while, her country with her. And so uh, I applaud anybody who's trying to break and take new ground and uh, invent new categories Absolutely. of living, working Absolutely. and All playing right. because those are the Last people topic, who move us forward. And then we'll kind of we'll, we'll wrap things up. You know, next time we do this, I hope there's a next time like we really need to do this with like drinks and i don't know if you do cigars but like we i feel like we should be we should have been drinking well into this oh man wait wait, wait time out we can, we can we can we talk about this 
Did you just pull out whiskey with you on it? <laughs> Does that bottle of whiskey have a picture of you on it? Am I am I deceived? Yeah, so my it, it it does. So this is a bottle of Jack Daniels, and my beloved uh, niece Melissa took. We we um, uh, we're the first podcaster ever, according to Steve Osler, the founder of Podcast Magazine. I love that. By the way, can you read some of those reviews? In Podcast Magazine <laughs> with negative reviews on it. So it says stuff like. Yeah, off-putting to some, The Economist uses profanity needlessly. Uh, that was from a review. Very disappointing and annoying host. <laughs> and this this author podcaster world that, that I find myself in is a world where a lot of pe- people spend a lot of time breaking their own arms, patting themselves on the back. And look, I understand self-promotion and, and you got to do some of that. And, and I do, but... Um, you know, this was, uh, this, this ad was our way of saying, uh, look, we don't take ourselves that seriously because we're going to be the first uh, podcast ever to run a full page ad in podcast magazine, who, by the way, named us the best business podcast, but we did not put that quote, uh, in this ad. (laughs) We put all the shit quotes in this ad. And if you go to uh, if you go to our website, so, you'll see there's just, an equal number of negative um, quotes as there are positive quotes. <laughs> because I've, very rarely have you ever I've seen anybody seen and I'm, pay and, to market and I'm a, um, I'm their, a negative, huge fan their negative their negative comments. Ad, advertising, <laughs> copywriting. I have so many books on copy from the 50s. I've never seen that. And just to bring it like really full circle, we kind of talked about how bad it's gotten with the media and politicians on focusing on things that. We hate, we get angry about, et cetera. The reason why is that that catches attention. You guys taken this really bad concept that's using this, this strategy that's used in a bad way and use it in a beneficial way because everybody and their mother is going to talk about, oh, our podcast is so fucking amazing. Everybody loves it, blah, blah. But you know what? what's going to get anybody to listen? If you're like, this podcast was this bad. It was terrible. It, it had a ter- uh, annoying host. Everyone's going to read that and be like, Holy shit! Well, I wanna, I wanna go listen to this podcast. How bad? How bad is it? It's amazing how that works, right? So, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so here's here. Right. It's called being different. <laughs> so here, my my last topic I want to cover with you, different. and then we'll wrap up. We'll, we'll wrap up in their quick tracks. rapid fire fun questions just on random stuff. But just this last thing, and again, I might ask this question here and be like, ah, shit, why did he ask me this? Because now we're going to go on for like another hour. But again, I want to be mindful of your time. Um, So you're one of the first and only people, aside from like random drama bloggers and YouTubers, to talk about this one entrepreneur in a way that we all think, but you kind of went at it very hard. Now this person I'm going to mention on one side is a huge, huge advocate about the concept of empathy, really understanding your customers, understanding where they come from. Everything. On the other side, does things that I'm like, I don't know if I'm down with that. So let's, let's have, we, can we have a sh- small case study conversation around Gary Vaynerchuk? You can opt out of this, but I'm, I, I, want, I want to pick your brain a little bit on that. So uh, I think Gary and his uh, hustle porn star brethren 
have done more damage as a group to entrepreneurs over the last 10 or 15 years than any other group. And my grievance starts here. Uh, he's the king of hustle. He said, I mean, I, I don't really follow him, okay? So, but I know he said these things, that hustle is the most important uh, word in the English language. And, you know, you need to work um, uh, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365, hustle, 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 hustle. Uh, he said things like, uh, nobody ever died from working too hard. Well, in Japan, they have a word for it. It's called kuroshi. It means death by overwork. And what I could tell you is if you hustle seven days a week, 365, 24 hours a day, yep. you will wake up at, if you're because he speaks, I think, to a lot of young entrepreneurs. There's nobody in Silicon Valley that listens to this guy because he's, I mean, he's an idiot. Um, but so it's a lot of young entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs who, by the way, I love and adore. I'm, I'm and one I, of them. I hope I'm one, I'm, all yeah, the entrepreneurs I'm, I'm become entrepreneurs. So I, I was a entrepreneur. I'm, I'm full on entrepreneur now. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's awesome. And I think most entrepreneurs start as entrepreneurs. I know I did. <laughs> um, and so, um, that's a very dangerous thing to tell people because if you do that, uh, you will end up fat, sick, and divorced. That's how you're going to end up. The other thing is that it, it, it sort of it, 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 it's a paradigm I reject. It's a premise that I reject, which is um, work to live or live to work. Now, you're talking to a guy who used to work 80 hours a week who traveled two to 400,000 miles a year on a plane for the better part of 20 years. I've lived this lifestyle and I understand there are points in the development of a business and the development of a career where you got to work really, really, really hard. And if you're an entrepreneur who needs to be told, Hey, this is going to take hard, long work. You're never going to be successful. And if you're told that what there is to do is be like Gary V and never stop working and work all the time, you're going to fucking kill yourself or make yourself very sick and divorced and fat. And your kids aren't going to like you very much. And you will. So for me, work design sits inside of life design. And we build them together. And we know, listen, if you want to be um, uh, Steph Curry, I agree. you're going to be imbalanced. This whole thing of work-life balance is stupid. His life is radically imbalanced. He does one of a he does a lot of one fucking thing. That's what he does. Three point shots, a lot of them. He does a lot of dribbling every fucking day. Uh, I remember you probably don't remember this guy's name. He was a famous skier in the sixties and seventies, named Jean Claude Keeley. And uh, when he was asked um, what what was he, he was looking forward to as he was retiring. He said uh, he w he wanted to learn how to dance because he'd never learned how to dance. And he said the second thing he was looking forward to is summer because he hadn't seen summer his entire life because he was always where it was snowing. So, look, I'm not stupid. It takes tremendous focus if you want to be legendary at something. However, if you follow this inane advice, 
you will destroy yourself and your family and your loved ones. In addition to that, hamsters hustle on a wheel. And to circle back to category design, the most legendary people who have the most legendary careers become known for a category that they own. And when that happens, you actually bend the universe. The universe starts to come to you. You know, think about doctors, right? Well, if you are known as a legendary specialist in this area, you are going to get referrals from general practitioners. That's called being known for a niche that you own. And if you're great at that and you become known for that, you don't have to market yourself. The referrals just come flying in. I have a friend who's an orthodontist, and I forget what the procedure is, but he specializes in one super technical surgery. And that's all he does, period. And he's known in the community. He lives here in the Silicon Valley area. Uh, He's known amongst um, uh, dentists for this one very uh, tough surgery. He's done it more than anyone else in the region. And if you have a patient who has this, you need this kind of surgery, dental surgery, you go to him. And so that's the other part of this hustle fallacy, which is what you want is you want to become known for a niche or a category that you can own. And if you're legendary at that and you evangelize the category, um, you will become known and, and actually you'll bend the universe. You want, this is why I, I, I reject the phrase go to market. Well, you could go to market if you want, or you could teach the market to come to you, which is what category design is. And so my other rejection of hustle, hustle, hustle is you can work hard and get fucking nowhere. You can work hard at a manual labor job and um, have little to show for it. And so, um, and then, you know, there's a whole bunch of other stupidity. You should puke out 2,000 pieces of content a day. The other part of this thing, and it's not just him, is the emergence of what we at Category Pirates refer to as the me disease. So another thing that Gary and many of these hustle porn stars evangelize is you got to build a personal brand. Oh, and now here's the other one I love. Omar, you got to build an authentic personal brand. Well, few things. A, nobody, and I mean fucking nobody, legendary, spent one second on their personal brand. Abraham Lincoln didn't. Steve Jobs didn't. Rosa Parks didn't. None of them. Not a one. Beyonce didn't. Adele didn't. George Bush didn't. Barack Obama didn't. None of them did. I met Colin Powell. He didn't build his personal brand. So what a personal brand is, by definition, is deeply inauthentic. What personal branding is, is what the image I want to present of myself on social media. Mm. That's what that is. It's deeply inauthentic. Gary V doesn't show much of his personal life, best I understand. He only shows you what he wants you to see. It's inauthentic. It's contrived. A brand is a contrived thing. And brands are about us. Categories are about customers and their problems. And so Gary V has infected an entire generation of entrepreneurs with this thing 
uh, called the me disease. They pick up their phone and, hey, guys, it's me again. Yeah, I'm having toast for breakfast. <laughs> Let me share my entrepreneurial journey with you. <laughs> like the world gives a fuck about your journey. What the world gives a fuck about is them. And unless your entrepreneurial journey is about making a difference for other people, no one gives a shit. Fans. I make a good noise on a guitar. The difference between me and Bruce is clear. Fans. And so it's it's an entire ethos um, that has fucked people up and twisted them up and made them think that they want to be social media celebrities. They want to be famous for the sake of being famous. That that likes and views and shares or somehow you can't buy groceries with that shit. Just for the record, um, that stuff's ridiculous. And yet, um, this is now what a lot of young entrepreneurs um, uh, get. They get they get drafted into this personal branding me disease uh, cult. When in point of fact, the most legendary entrepreneurs make a difference for others. Now, by the way, there are digital entrepreneurs who some people would call influencers. I wouldn't. For me, an influencer is a bad word. But my friend um, um, Joanne Molina is a legendary digital entrepreneur. She's better known as the Korean vegan. She niched down and she combined veganism with Korean food because she married an Italian guy who was a vegan. And so she tried veganism, but she couldn't find any uh, Korean vegan shit. And she's Korean and she wanted the shit that her mother and grandmother made just vegan style. So she figured it out. And as she figured it out, she started sharing it on social media. She was a high powered, super successful lawyer. And now she quit her job as a senior partner in a very prestigious firm. And she's full time the, 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 the Korean vegan, and she's got books out, and she's got this and that and the other, and she's become a digital celebrity uh, doing that. However, the reason she's successful is because she's teaching people, and she's doing it in a fun, engaging, compelling, and entertaining way, and she makes people feel good as she teaches them. That's very different than an asshole with the me disease uh, working Damn, on that their personal brand, in my opinion. Fantastic. <laughs> and I – and, you know – I, I agree. I, there are things that I've that I, I have to credit that I definitely learned from Gary Vee many years ago that I like. Uh, this concept of not caring about other people, pursuing your your passions. You know, uh, you know those things. I think I can take as a good thing. And I, I look at a lot of things in life, not as good or bad, but what can I take out of this? That was something that I think was good. He's 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 got some. He's got a lot of interesting takes on 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 things. What I agree with you is this concept of hustle porn and especially being, you know, now I'm, in, I'm 35, but when I was listening to Gary Vee, I was uh, in my uh, mid twenties. It's not good. And the reason why I say that is that just because you're working yourself to death, that does not mean you're going to achieve things, nor does it mean that it's going to happen faster. I think there's this misconception with entrepreneurs, startups, etc., which is, if you just work really, really hard, you can accelerate things. And yeah, maybe sometimes, but I don't think that's a way to live life. I agree with you that to achieve, you know, to do legendary things, um, you, there's no such thing as work-life balance. But I think that what that means is not necessarily hustle, but obsession. So like when I listen to Christopher Lockhead, there is a level of obsession there. 
I know that you work really, really hard, but you're obsessed with the things that you talk about, right? Which means that, yeah, there is, I think, some hustle and hard work there. More importantly, and again, to go back to what you mentioned earlier, this concept of what are you going to let go, which is, again, aside from what we're talking about in our careers, a deeply religious idea of sacrifice. So what are you going to let go now so you can reach for something? For me, again, I'm having a baby soon. I'm married. I work extremely hard. But do I hustle? I don't see it as that. But I've made clear clear decisions in my life, tough ones, of what I'm going to sacrifice so I can be as legendary as possible at what I do, which means I'm going to not spend the evening looking at bullshit. I'm going to go to bed really early so I can wake up at 5 a.m. and 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 read, for example. I'm going to overcome dyslexia, you know? Huh. I Exactly. And to me, that's not hustle. That's discipline. Discipline. You know, Jocko Willink talks about. Christopher, this conversation has um, been a long time thing is coming. Discipline that's equals exactly freedom. what I was getting big at. Thing? Uh, discipline equals freedom. That's what it's about. Yeah, look, it takes discipline. If you want to play guitar, you you, you got to work at it, right? For sure. The other thing, too, is this fallacy. You know, the, the, the other thing about this whole hustle, work hard thing. Um, and this wasn't true for me for all of my life, but it's been true for part of it. And it's true for all of my professional life today. Everything I do is a labor of love. All of it. I work with people that I absolutely love. Uh, I have insanely creative and rewarding partnerships and relationships. Um, I don't consider my work work in that sense. Um, I, I, I don't worry about how much time I work or don't work. Um, I do what's required and I do it with people that I love on things that I think are really, really important that matter to me. And I think to many others. And um, I think if this whole sort of grind, rah, rah, hustle thing, it devalues the value of work as part of human identity. The reality is for many of us, not all of us, but many of us, our work is a huge part of who we are. I know a lot of doctors and I know a lot of nurses. And the thing I know about all my friends who are doctors and nurses, you know, my friend Stephanie Hansen, who's a retired head nurse from Tahoe, being a nurse is who she is. It's not just her occupation. And my friend, Dr. Kathy, who's been my physician for 25 years, being a legendary physician is who that woman is. She's, she's demonstrated it more times than I can count. And so, and for many people, being an entrepreneur is part of who they are. And maybe they're also a mom and maybe they're a sister and maybe they're, uh, we're all the child of somebody, right? And so there's a lot of use cases of Omar, <laughs> if you will. But, but this whole sort of uh, grind and hustle, it sits in this context that, well, you know, I'm going to work in order to get a reward. And once I get the reward, then I won. And that is an infantile way of thinking. 
because what you realize over time is the reward for doing work that matters to you and others is that you get to do the work. The prize for being a podcaster is podcasting. Walt Disney said, we don't make money. Uh, We don't make movies to make money. We make money to make movies. And so there's this other thing that all that bullshit sits in, which is work hard and grind so that you get to some mercenary-like reward. When in point of fact, the people who have the most legendary careers are those who view the work as the reward. I, I know many doctors who could have retired a long time ago, and they keep working. Why? They fucking love their patients. I know doctors and nurses who were either going to retire or who were retired, who came back in this COVID crisis. They came back. They risked their own fucking health. They risked their own health, their own lives, and the lives of their families to go serve in our nation's hospitals. Because there was a crisis of epic proportion that hadn't been seen in over 100 years. These are people who are not working because they have to. When work is done in a, in, a, in, a, in a conscious, proactive, designed way, it's part of who you are. Some people feel like they have a calling. Some people find their place. Some people make their place. However the fuck you get there. But if you get there and you're doing work that matters to you and others, that work is a massively important part of your life and of who you are. And this hustle porn shit that's all about the reward and a carrot, uh, you know, it's going to be terrible for 25 years, but like, then you'll be able to, then you'll be able to be able to buy a fucking jet just like me. You know, any asshole selling a course standing in front of a plane is an asshole. And look, if you want to go buy a plane, go buy a plane. I know, I, I know billionaire, have a, buy a plane. You want to buy an outrageous boat? Go buy an outrageous boat. Whatever you like. I don't give a shit. But the most legendary people in the I, world work as part of who they are. And all that shit I completely agree. diminishes. I completely agree. All that shit gets lost. Yeah, I don't personally system. know Gary Vaynerchuk, but I feel that he would agree with everything that you just said. The problem is that his message doesn't come across that way. And I think the most important thing is that the work is the reward. You know, did you watch the, the, the la- you watched the last dance with Michael Jordan, the Bulls? Phenomenal. When you look at the last dance, and I, I really, it really resonated with me. When they show Michael Jordan, it's not that he's doing the hustle and everything. It was a level of obsession with the work. If you read like Steve Pressfield's The War of Art and, and, and Going Pro and everything, it's about obsession with the work. That's the reward. And for anybody who's listening, I hope this, uh, this will inspire you. In December, when I left my job, I was interviewing at other companies and nothing resonated with me. And I said, I don't get, I don't feel anything. And I remember speaking to my father, who's a surgeon, general surgeon, he's retired. And he was talking about surgery and then his eyes lit up and he said, he said, you know, it's so amazing when you're doing surgery and seeing 
seeing the body, the way it works and all the, like, it's amazing. I can't believe that this actually, somebody designed this and seeing that level of excitement, enthusiasm, I said, I need to do something that gets, gets me that feeling. And I spoke to my wife and I said, I think I need to start a company. But in December, I didn't know what the hell I was going to start. I just knew I had to start, start a company. That was it. And I built this company around things that not just I'm passionate. I think pa I think pa passion can be bullshit, and to be honest with you, but things I'm deeply interested in that I'm obsessed with. That every day the work is like is is really my reward, and I think that's lost. And people who do this hustle, I'm going to work to you know so hard. It's that they see that as what you have to do to get to, to where you want to go, which is true. But it's it's not about the destination. It's a oh god, this is so fucking cliche. I can't believe I'm going to say it. It's not about the destination. It's about the process and the journey. That's the actual reward. Yeah, and look, I, I know a lot of billionaires. They still work. I was financially free in my late 20s. Uh, no, I, 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 I wholeheartedly agree. Um, it's, it is about This has been fantastic. We're going to end with a quick segment. This is going to take a couple of minutes. But I, uh, you know, again, Christopher, um, I, I thank you for coming on the show. I think a lot of people, uh, both young and old, mid-career, late-career, starting their career, are going to benefit a lot just from the advice that you've that you've shared. I'm going to leave in the show notes uh, links to follow you online along with uh, your two fantastic podcasts. Um, but this is a quick rapid-fire segment. Um, so you get to you get to take as long as you want to answer, as quickly as you want. We're going to do three or four questions, okay? So the first question is that, um, you know, the pandemic uh, from 2020 to 2021, you know, we're all stuck at home. We bought a lot of shit. We bought a lot of dumb stuff. We also bought a lot of legendary stuff, in my opinion. Um, for less than $200, what was the most interesting, coolest thing that you bought? It could be a book. It could be a gadget. For less than 200 bucks. Um uh, so I love new categories and we have a garden with hens and I uh, often go out and check on them at night and, you know, or take out the garbage and do all that stuff. And, um, and I would take a flashlight. Um, my wife bought me a beanie with a led light in it. So you put the beanie on, you press the light. And you can go check on the hens or, 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 or bring that. in the garbage that's, that's bins actually really, uh, or, or whatever that. else. So that is actually uh, really I'll cool. go with that one. All right. Next question. Um, you know, life, as we mentioned, is about continuing education. A lot of it's about mentorship. And we've been lucky to have mentors of all kinds. Uh, books, people we've mentored, our spouses, our parents, our friends. What was the most painful thing somebody ever told you that made you change for the better? Yeah, I was going to say, go with the first thing that comes to mind is what I usually wow, tell people. It's hard to narrow down one. <laughs> uh, the first thing that came to mind is um, when I first started to public speak, I had this sort of aha that um, public speaking was a superpower and that I might have what it takes to be good at that. And so I tried to, to do that. Um and when I first started to do it, 
I didn't know how truly I sucked. And, um, and so being told by a mentor after I'd gone up in front of a, what felt like a very large group of people and given a 15 minute talk, uh, how truly bad I was that I came off as arrogant, that I came off as a drill sergeant, that I came off as unapproachable, blah, blah, et cetera, et cetera, uh, was a very, uh, tough, tough, tough pill. Um, but I think when people are ruthlessly candid and compassionate at the same time, I'm a fan of Kim Scott's work in this regard, radical candor. People should go read radical candor, check her out. She's amazing. Um, radical candor, even when it's painful, um, is powerful. And I've had, uh, I've had a lot of it and I still get it on a fairly regular basis. I have a, uh, community of family and friends around me who, uh, um, will 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 let me know the second they think I'm being an asshole or unreasonable or stupid or or what have you. So it's it's something I it, it's a it's a it's a cocktail I've I feel like used I feel like consuming, it's a skill, but it, it never goes down that well. Uh, really direct <laughs> candid feedback things that hurt and take into account and say what can I gain from this and actually change how I how I how I act in the world. I think I I definitely think it's a superpower. Yeah, I, I try to be a person who would rather be successful than right. And so um, when somebody incredible gives me something hard to think about, then I wholeheartedly I agree. do my Last best not questions. to be defensive um, and give it some real thought. You, you like myself, uh, are, are a big reader. You, you probably have your own library. What's a book that you feel that you often recommend or gift to people? Right? Either it's one that you, you feel like you give out or recommend all the time or maybe something recent. What comes to mind? Oh shit! Now I now I definitely so want to buy two books. That <laughs> I'm, are a, out I'm a big of print fan of buying out of print talks books. About anymore that no, and you can you, you can you can get them. Um, the first one is from the OGs of the of the work that I do, uh, which is recent trout. Um, they're the godfathers of positioning, and they wrote a book called Horse Sense, where they take all of their thoughts on positioning and apply them to your career, and the insight is it's not you, it's the horse that you're riding, and they break down all of the different horses that you can ride to be successful, and and just realizing for me as a young man, like we talked about earlier, it's other people that make you successful, um, that book was a real eye-opener. And then there's another one uh, written by a legendary entrepreneur named Mark McCormick. And Mark was the founder of IMG, which is the largest, I believe, the largest talent management company uh, in the world. And they're now merged with somebody. They're called IMG something something or something something IMG. Anyway, he wrote a legendary book called What They Don't Teach You at the Harvard Business School. And it's a lot about how to conduct yourself in business. And there are some real gems in that book that particularly as a young man uh, made a gigantic difference. So I would encourage people to read Horse Sense by Recent Trout, the OGs of positioning and what they don't teach you at the Harvard Business as I School. Keep, as I keep repeating Mark to the McCormick. people who follow this, someone that you respect and admire says something, just take action. So I just found them both on eBay. I was kind of hoping that it'd be extremely expensive. It would, I would feel like a little bit of a pain, but like it feels good when you buy expensive books, like breakthrough advertising. I had to spend 200 bucks on that book, but damn, that felt really good. Um, I'm going to leave that those, those in the show notes. 
Um, uh, last question, but real quick, a thing on Aurys. Um, you want to talk about somebody legendary? The guy's in his nineties and he's still active, like engaging with people on LinkedIn. He, you know, I had done a few reviews and and videos on his work, and he commented, and I was like, "Is this Aurys really?" And I messaged him, and super nice guy. That guy's an OG for sure, big time, big time. All right, last question for you. For the next year, I want to pre let's pretend that I take out a billboard, and since we live in this digital age where we're all hooked on our phones, let's say there's a notification that pops up on the screen every morning of every entrepreneur, every you know, white collar worker. Let's just say let's just say entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, okay, uh, in America. What message do you put on that notification and billboard? They're going to see every day for a year. Categories make companies. Categories make careers. Fantastic. Fantastic. Christopher Lockhead, what an honor and pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for going this long. Stay on for, for, for a second after just so we can chat. Thank you all for joining. I'm your head of state, Omar M. Khatib. This is the state of MedTech. And also for you, MindLoomers, if you listen to this on MindLoom, welcome to the MindLoom show. I know it's been a while that we took a break. I'm happy to be back with another great author. For those interested, I will be leaving links in the show notes to Christopher's two fantastic podcasts, which I highly recommend, as well as some of the books that he's written and his uh, uh, website. We'll see you later. Take care, everybody. Bye for now. That's our episode today, everybody. Thank you for listening to the show. Hey, join others and leave us a five-star review. So if you're on Spotify, just click the five stars at the very top of the episode and subscribe. If you're on Apple, give us five stars, subscribe, and write a short review. And lastly, if you're watching this on Spotify, go to the bottom. You'll see a place where we left poll questions for you to comment and give us feedback on. See you next time.